Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. I'm so glad I get to pick the music because I was able to find another Pet Shop Boys song that goes with this month's episode. That was Inner Sanctum by Pet Shop Boys from their 2016 album Super, available on Apple Music. And again, with the exception, as you just mentioned, of last month's rather, uh, how would you describe the morning after? Challenging. (laughs) Yeah, so we're back to the peppy. Let's go. Let's have a fun episode. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Clearly had to have been inspired by Inner Sanctum. I mean, that's where the name Inner Sanctum came from. So, and it's been a part of our pop culture ever since. So every time you watch, yeah, they've mentioned it on the Simpsons or whatever, whenever they mention the Inner Sanctum, it goes back to what we are watching and, and people were listening to back in the day. Yeah, so the inner sanctum is a whole big thing with a lot of different media types. We're specifically going to focus on six movies that came out in the golden age of horror in the mid-40s. But with Richard's knowledge of old-time radio, we're going to learn a lot about the whole franchise, really. But focusing on those six movies, all starring Lon Chaney Jr. If you're this many episodes into the show, I hope that you know who Lon Chaney Jr. is. But we're going to focus on what I think are kind of unique because, I mean, in this time period, a lot of the movies he was playing, right, Wolfman and and Frankenstein monsters and mummies. And this was an opportunity in these six films for him to play the kind of dashing leading man without having to wear makeup and without turning into a monster. And it was allowing him to kind of show off his acting chops a little bit. And unfortunately, not too long after this series wrapped up, you know, his own personal life began to kind of take a take a turn, which I, I suppose we'll touch on a little bit. But this is like Lon Chaney in his prime, 43 to 45, dashing. He's got that mustache. He's just looking the part. And I think these movies just show off what I think really could have been He could have, and he did, you know, obviously play in other films and other non-horror films, but I think there was some potential for him to have gone on and and maybe done even bigger and better things had he not had a taste for the liquor. It aged him greatly. You know, when you look at 45 to like 52, when he does the Black Castle with Boris Karloff and you see him in that film, even from like 48 the 52 after he wraps up Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And then just four years later, he he's aged a lot in that four years and it, and it took its toll on him. So this is Lon Chaney when he's in his prime looking good. So this should be a good solid episode, six movies 
Let's see if we can go 12 hours with this podcast. (laughs) Welcome, everyone, to episode 55 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I am Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. We also want to say hello to our audience on YouTube that is watching the video companion to the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Let's say hello to them. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us either way. And if you're watching one, we invite you to watch or listen to the other. Let's call this meeting to order. And start with a roll call of new members. We have three new members this month. These are new members to the Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast Facebook group page. I love this guy's name. Again, you got to wonder if it's real or not. Chris Thrasher. Welcome. You know, if it's not, hey, it's it's an awesome name. Dennis Cormier, C-O-R-M-I-E-R. Not sure I pronounced that correctly. Welcome, Dennis. And Michael Cross. Welcome, Michael. Michael is starting things off right. Not only did he join the Facebook group page, he sent feedback to our email, which is classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Short and sweet, but it was a fantastic feedback. He said, nice hearing you mention the book that I have owned since probably 1977. Enjoying your podcast. He's referring to the book Catastrophe, the End of Cinema that we used as one of our resources last month when we did our episode on disaster movies of the 70s. Fantastic. Welcome. I welcome all three new members and getting started off right, leaving us some feedback. We always want to hear what people are thinking of what uh, what we did. And as I always say, you don't need to leave feedback for just the last 30 days. You can go all the way back to day one and let us know what you think, because, uh, you know, we often uh, revisit topics and talk about things that we did in the past because a lot of the actors and writers and producers and directors are all kind of interconnected in a tiny, whiny, wibbly wobbly kind of way. And you're going to have that in this episode because a lot of these people were in the universal, you know, warehouse of, of actors and writers and directors and a lot of familiar titles are going to be mentioned rather repeatedly over the course of these six films when we start talking about other work that they did. And quite frankly, we'll bleed over into next month as well. Uh, let us know. Let us know what, what you thought of what we did two years ago. Yeah, quick note on that. If you stick to the end, God bless you if you do, we always have new business and we do anniversaries of movies that have been released. We do birthdays. We've done enough episodes now, I mean, 55, that I am now using ones that refer to previous episodes. So if you hear a name or a title mentioned at the end of the show, maybe that would trigger you to either listen to an older show or think of some feedback that you want to leave about not even the show, but the movies we talk about or the actors that we talk about. That'd be great. And this is our friend Bill Mize from the Bill Watches Movie Podcast, and he is commenting specifically on that disaster film episode and sort of its evolution. Let's hear what Bill has to say. Hello, my Jeff. Hello, my Rich. It's your boy, Bill Mize from the Bill Watches Movies podcast. And I am calling in with another love letter for your most recent show in which you discussed the magical period of the 70s and a few of the disaster movies contained therein. I've said it before, and I will keep saying it, that I love these shows. 
I do encourage you to keep stepping outside the box, keep expanding your horizons, and I will be your Huckleberry for life. I have to admit that I'm a sucker for disaster movies in general, and ensemble casting in particular. You are absolutely correct that these are producer-based extravaganzas. The producers go out, they shake hands, they kiss babies to get these stars. Some rising, some established, some out of the limelight and looking for a comeback. To appear in these films is nothing short of amazing. As a former mystery novelist, I like that they moved sideways from disaster films to murder mysteries, as shown by 1974's Murder on the Orient Express and 1978's Murder on the Nile. But even then, the ensemble films seemed to slowly evaporate and fall out of favor and headed to television with shows like The Love Boat or Fantasy Island. But imagine my surprise when, in 2017, Kenneth Branagh, with whom I share a birthday, took up the mantle of Poirot, and we again have a cast of a dozen or so stars, one of whom is guilty of murder. Then, Daniel Craig, my favorite Bond, appears as a sleuth in Knives Out, again with a stellar ensemble cast, including the recently departed Christopher Plummer, whom I would watch read a phone book with rapt attention. I, for one, welcome our new mystery ensemble overlords and look forward to further adventures of Poirot and Benoit Blanc as sequels have been announced for both these films. Thank you again for talking about these pictures and bringing them to a new generation of fans or just reminding us older fans that they are still out there and ready to be enjoyed. I wish you both the best and thank you as always for the support and kindness you have shown toward myself and my show. I love you guys. Take care and we'll talk to you later. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate the effort you put into your voicemail. I can just see you. I know you are a very diligent writer for your own podcasts, and that's with an S, podcasts now. And you talk about going to Panera and sitting and writing your scripts. That that felt like a scripted, yet at the same time, naturally organic feedback. So appreciate that. Great call out about sort of the evolution of disaster films specifically the all-star casts that were a identifying feature of those films and sort of what happened to those large casts as the disaster film went to the wayside. They were not unemployed at all. They found other work through uh, various other types of genres. Absolutely. Thank you for calling in. And, and Bill, I know you are being very prolific right now with doing um, really multiple podcasts almost is what you're doing. You've got different things, different irons in the fire, as they say. Shout out to you, Bill, and, and look forward to, yeah, we're not going to get a chance to, to see you in person with the announcement that Bash has been canceled again. I guess not a surprise, unfortunately. October Bash might be on the horizon for, for some people. 
but we'll definitely be talking to you soon. This came through our telephone line, 616-649-2582. That's 616-649. I should probably give Steve Sullivan some type of like, you know, monetary credit or something like that, you know, send him a penny each month or something. Well, it's interesting that you said that because this voicemail did come from Derek M. Cook from Monster Kid Radio, our mentor, our inspiration. I've said before, I don't know that I'd be doing this podcast if it wasn't for Monster Kid Radio. Richard, you might. You've got a history in it, but I don't believe I would have. This is a future voicemail, which that's something you can do. You can you find out what we're going to watch, watch them ahead of time, or maybe you've seen them, and you can leave feedback for an episode that's actually happening in real time. Participate in the show more directly that way. It's not a long voicemail, but it is perfect. So let's play that. Weird woman is the best. I wish I could grow a mustache like Lon Chaney. Thank you again, Derek. Thank you to everyone that left feedback. I believe it makes our episodes, our monthly meetings, a little more rich to have Uh, I mean, we have rich, of course, but this makes it a little more rich when we have other people participating. So thank you very much. Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time. You can never have too much rich. That's all I have to say. (laughs) I don't know. Much more of that uh, singing out our phone number and we might feel differently about that. Wow. That's harsh. I'm hurt. I'm hurt. All right, Richard, take us, open that creaky door and take us into the inner sanctum. Tell us what what is it all about? Is this where we look on the script, insert creaking door sound? If we did, we might have to pay Hyman Brown because he somehow copyrighted the creaking really? door sound. Although I don't know how that would work. How do you copyright a sound? Yeah, so let's go back. 1930, Inner Sanctum was actually a series of novels. It was the Inner Sanctum well, I think they call it the Inner Sanctum Mystery Series, but there was actually more than mysteries initially. It came from Simon & Schuster. The very first novel that they put out was called I Am Jonathan Scrivener, written by Claude Houghton. They had color codes on their novels. So if, because uh, they did do some others, so they did drama and they would have blue covers. Hmm. And if there was a romance, it was red. And if it was a mystery, it was green. And I think they may have had some other colors in there. That's how they you knew what you were getting by basically the, the color of the, the book. And it was a very successful line of books that led eventually to a radio program launching in 1941. Simon and Schuster decided they were going to more or less sponsor or endorse the radio show as a way to promote the novels. So at the end of the episodes, what was the book they were promoting would be, you know, hyped up on the show. Hyman Brown was the man behind the creation of the radio program. It launched on January 7th, 1941, and would run for a total of 526 episodes between 41 and then October 5th, 1952. Sadly, only about 200 of those still exist today, and a lot of those are because of uh, the Armed Forces radio rebroadcast. A lot of radio shows from this time period, you know, early to mid 40s, they were rebroadcast on Armed Forces Radio. And that ends up being like the only copy of the the radio shows that still exist, because they were on transcription discs. And a lot of radio programs, especially in the early days of radio, sadly don't exist anymore. In fact, just to show you how rare they are, 
just in the last week or so, Martin Grahams, who we will talk a little bit about here and as we talk about the extras on the Blu-ray set, he announced that they found three Amos and Andy transcription discs from 1929. Incredibly rare to even find these still in existence. And these were missing episodes. I mean, a lot of those episodes in this time period are gone. They're being made available to people who who want to purchase them and and they get a few extras to go along with them. But it was like $1,000 to purchase these discs at an auction. So that tells you how rare these transcription discs are, which is also why a lot of these discs were treated, they were like glass almost. And so as they were stored, they would break. And then that would sometimes be the only copy of the radio show. With 200 episodes still in existence, though, it gives us a, a pretty good idea of what this show was like. You know, there were some horror episodes. There were some definitely some mystery and th- some thrillers. Some were a little tongue-in-cheek. The openings of the show certainly were tongue-in-cheek. You had the creaking door. The host of the show initially was Raymond Johnson and later was Paul McGrath. And they would offer these like humorous introductions to whatever the creepy story of the week was. Hello. Hello. Oh, oh, there you are. I was afraid for a moment that you had forgotten our appointment. Why, you almost scared me to death. And that won't do after all the pains I've taken to scare you. You remember me, don't you? I'm your host on behalf of the makers of Carter's Pills. And you're to be my guest tonight in the mysterious circle of the inner sanctum. Come in, friends, won't you? Thank you. Take that chair to the fire. Good. And you'll become accustomed to the dim lights in a moment. Uh, 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 don't get too comfortable, because we'll have you out of that chair with thrills and chills, shivers and quivers. <laughs> You're on our side, aren't you? Uh, you'd better be. But don't worry. Instead of the arch-criminals haunting us, we're going to haunt them. We're going to scare the daylights out of them. Yes. Welcome, then, friend. Welcome to the mysterious circle of the inner sanctum. And listen to as weird and strange a tale as ever was told. The amazing death of Mrs. Putnam. You had a lot of legends who were on this show. Boris Karloff, in particular, did a lot of inner sanctum mysteries when the show launched in like the early 40s because he was doing arsenic and old lace down the street, and then he would do inner sanctum on the radio. Some classic episodes. He also got Peter Laurie, Bella Lugosi, um, Orson Welles, even Frank Sinatra, who was you know popular singer in the 40s. Everyone thinks of Frank in the 50s or 60s or as he was later on. In the 40s, he was this skinny young kid playing with Tommy Dorsey and making a name for himself. I did not even know until doing the research that he did an episode of Inner Sanctum. I don't know if it exists, but I'm going to do some research and probably throw it up on the uh, KC Cinephile blog. We do OTR Wednesdays. 
May I interrupt for a sec? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go back to the books because you said something that has me kind of puzzled. They weren't all thrillers, mystery horror. They were all kind of genres. So the inner sanctum itself doesn't refer to this. I mean, they make such a big deal. I mean, it works perfectly for the mysteries, for the thrillers, the horror. But eventually went the as I understand it, they eventually were strictly mysteries. But initially, upon being launched, yeah, the inner sanctum covered other genres. Well, I was just looking up because I was curious what the availability of any of those all old inner sanctum books would be. And there's one called False Face from 1947. And on the spine, it has a little logo of someone holding a book open and it says an inner sanctum mystery. However, there is an inner sanctum edition of War and Peace. Wow. Okay. And you, you, uh, it doesn't show the spine, but it shows the contents page and the copyright, and it says "Inner Sanctum." It was like it's its own kind of you know label within a label. You know, huh. it's like a way. I warm piece. That's a new. Well, I mean, that would be a drama, right? Yeah. So it would fit into that. And of course, Simon and Schuster, legendary production house, uh, publishing house, rather. So they'd have access to a lot of, of classics and not so classic. Everyone talks about the radio series or the films and stuff. Now, of course, the books, uh, I'm assuming, are out of print. Probably very hard to find. If anyone's out there familiar with the series wants to give us a little more information, let us know. Give us a call or, or let us in because I couldn't find a lot about it. Try to, to figure out like how many books they made or whatever. If there's any information out there, let us know because I'd love to know more about it. The radio show, as I was saying, you know, you've got the the different hosts, the two different hosts, but they were essentially, they were the same character. Paul McGrath replaced Raymond Johnson because Raymond went into the service during the war. The episodes would always end with the host saying, pleasant dreams. The creaking door sound at the start of the episodes became synonymous with Inner Sanctum. It was based on a real door, apparently in the basement of the radio station, but the creaking door sound, pulling back the curtain a little bit, was actually a chair. And Hyman Brown would like turn on his chair and it would squeak, and that was the creaking door sound. And apparently there would be occasions where the, either the squeak wouldn't squeak right, or someone had oiled the chair, and he would turn and there'd be no sound. So then the announcer would have to be the creaking door sound because they didn't have like a standby. I've never heard one of those, or at least was aware that I was listening to that, but it's one of those radio legends. So I don't know if there's any truth in that or not. So Hyman Brown somehow patented the creaking door sound. Although again, I'm not exactly sure how that worked, but it's never been heard on any other show. And it was something that he would reuse again, which we'll talk about a little bit later as he would kind of get back into radio in the 1970s. By the time our first movie hits, 1943, Inner Sanctum had been on the air for really three years because the first movie came out in December of 43. Inner Sanctum started in January 7th of 41. So it was very much in pop culture by that point, three years going strong and was a very popular you know, radio show. They enter Universal Pictures. They decide they want to do the Inner Sanctum movies. So they obviously have to work with Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster says, absolutely, you know, you can use the Inner Sanctum name. But they ran into a problem with Hyman Brown. And I've heard a couple of different stories, but essentially I think it came down to 
to money. Hyman Brown wanted more money than what they were willing to pay. Apparently what he was wanting for his creaking door sound is his patented inner sanctum sound was way out of budget for these films. And so they said, well, you know, we're not going to do that. We'll do our own thing. And that's where you get the floating head in a jar that starts off five of the six movies that is exclusive to the film series. It had nothing mm. to do with the radio series. It was their way to say, look, at the beginning of it, you always always says an inner sanctum mystery. Simon and Schuster gets full credit. The little, as you said, the little logo, the hands holding the book that pops up on the uh, on the movie posters. Then all of a sudden, then instead of the creaking door, we go to the floating head, and that is the exclusive host for, like I said, five of the six movies that we're going to cover wasn't present in the last movie and i don't know why they they opted not to to have the head in that sixth movie rather than just go they still called it an inner sanctum mystery but it went right into the credits rather than hearing the floating head talking about you know everyone commit murder even you it was a good take on the kind of tongue-in-cheek intro that the radio did i i don't know though i mean the tongue-in-cheek part of the radio show might not have worked as well for these movies. I don't know. I know that they, and we'll talk about this, but they they did do that on the TV series because Hyman Brown was involved in that. But I don't know if these would have started with the creaking door and with Raymond, the host, doing the tongue-in-cheek intro and then going in. I think it would have set the tone a little off and then with the radio it worked right because you had the host and then you dive into it and it was even unique though for radio because usually most horror shows on the radio the host isn't as quite as tongue-in-cheek but kind of introduces the the tale and dives right into it inner sanctum was unique and i think that's what made it so popular and added kind of a different flair i don't know though if it would have worked on on screen Nonetheless, I think the the floating head worked out fine, although it was a little weird. I think the first movie, and maybe it was just the copy of the movie I was watching, I would try to like look at the lips to see if the lips were in sync, and it seemed like it was out of sync in the first movie, and I don't know if that's just the copy. of It's on the Blu-ray, but it, it was in sync in some of the other films. I didn't notice that. What do you know about the head, David Hoffman? He did start a few other things. He was billed, or I think, I don't know if he was credited as it, but in IMDb, he is the spirit of the inner sanctum. He does have a few other films from around this time period. He did look a little familiar to me once I looked at his picture on IMDb because he was in A Night in Casablanca with the Marx Brothers. He was also in The Beast with Five Fingers and The Creeper, 1948. Beyond that, I, I, don't, I don't know much about David Hoffman other than he did kind of have a unique look. Yeah, it looks a little bit in this one picture like Norman Fell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A, uh, an emaciated Norman Fell. I was going to say an emaciated Norman Fell. That that would take a whole different spin on Three's Company, wouldn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, talk about tongue-in-cheek. Uh, <laughs> I don't anyway, even know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> this leads us up to December 17th, 1943, in the first film, Calling Dr. Death, kicking off the Inner Sanctum series.
After two years, psychiatrist Lon Chaney Jr.'s marriage to his wife is a no-go. When he wakes up one morning in his office with no memory and learns that she's been murdered, he uses his own methods to hypnotize himself and learn the truth. All right, so Lon Chaney Jr., at this point, he had done several films for Universal. He had he had been The Wolfman already. He had been Frankenstein's Monster. He had been Count Dracula. He was in Man-Made Monster. And so now he gets to be able to take the lead in a film without makeup or without playing a monster. And he gets to, in these six films, kind of play kind of the same character, but yet different, right? I mean, there's some similarities and there's some differences. And in, in this film, he's Dr. Mark Steele. You've got a great cast. And I think that's the thing with these movies right out of the gate. You've got some some good supporting cast members in all of these films. You get some familiar faces. It can get a little confusing and sometimes because we have some familiar faces who keep coming back and playing different characters. And so you're like, oh, this is Inner Sanctum and it's Lon Chaney and he's a different character and this person's a different character. I think that just, you know, at the time, I think there was enough gap between the films and people were kind of seeing these and not really revisiting them. So it was probably less confusing for audiences at the time than for now. If people were to sit there and watch, you might expect that he's playing the same character, but he's, you know, different characters, different situations, yet kind of similar tones. I think with this particular film, you've got always have kind of the police inspector, police chief or detective or something in these movies. You got J. Carol Nash as Inspector Gregg, and I love J. Carol Nash. He's got a certain weird charm about him, and even more so in, in the second movie in the series that he does. I do have a little bit on J. Carol Nash. So if you're not familiar with who he is, so he was born in 1896. He had over 220 acting credits. He was very prolific. He did a lot of films around this time period. He was in Charlie Chan at the Circus. Think fast, Mr. Moto. Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto, again, you're going to hear those names a lot because a lot of these actors and were involved in these films. But he was in Sahara with Humphrey Bogart, and he got nominated for an Academy Award. Didn't, didn't get the award, but that's a great movie with Humphrey Bogart if you haven't seen it. He was also in Bo Jest, which is another classic. He was in Dr. Renault's Secret, The Monster Maker, Jungle Woman, House of Frankenstein, Beast with Five Fingers. In 57, he did 39 episodes of The New Adventures of Charlie Chan because he became Charlie Chan himself. Not politically correct in any way, shape, or form. Charlie Chan series and Mr. Moto series, yes, you've got Caucasian actors playing Asian characters, but it was accepted at the time. And so he just became, at that point, the at least the fourth actor, fourth Caucasian actor to play Charlie Chan. I think there was even a few other earlier versions of Chan, and they were always Caucasian actors. And of course, people remember him for his last film in 71, which was Dracula versus Frankenstein, where he played Dr. Frankenstein. But he was also very popular on radio. He was on a long-running series called Life with Luigi. He played an Italian, Luigi Basco. The episodes would always start with him writing a letter to his mother. And every episode would start, Dear Mamma Mia, and would talk about whatever the episode of the week was. 
And his like sponsor, Pasquale, was voiced by Alan Reed, better known as Fred Flintstone. So when you listen to these, you can't help but hear Fred Flintstone. And Pasquale had, of course, a fat daughter that he was always trying to marry off to Luigi. The show uh, ran on the radio from 48 to 53. And they even tried to do a TV show with the same uh, actors in the fall of 52. But they got pressure from the Italian-American community. They didn't like how the character was being portrayed. It is certainly stereotypical. So the TV show was kind of quickly canceled. And the radio show got canceled shortly thereafter. And I often thought there has to be some type of connection. One was canceled, maybe pressure on the other one. 53 also is when the golden age of radio was certainly dying out. A lot of shows were ending around that time. Still had like another nine years left before radio officially ended, that the golden age of radio ended. But a lot of shows were transitioning in the 50s from radio to TV or were dying out. Life with Luigi had kind of run its course more than likely. I have to admit, I've always kind of found it funny. It's a, it's a fun show. It's an interesting show because he is in a class in the evenings. He's staying doing night school. And of course, they've got all these other nationalities. It is all stereotypical, but it is very much 1948. So listen to that show, understanding the time period in which it was made and understanding that it was intended for humor without hurting anyone, even though some people obviously did take offense to it. But Life of Luigi is still fun if you understand the time period in which it was made. I think with J. Carroll Nash, for him, I just like his look, and he's just kind of this no-nonsense inspector, but he's always got this certain suave approach. And even in that final scene, he says something to the effect of, well, your, your life is going back to normal, but you know, mine, mine's only beginning, you know, somewhere, you know, there's a murder being committed right now. And then the phone rings and like, where, you know, the ambassador hotel. And there we go. Another murder. You know, it's just, but he makes it sound so glamorous. I really appreciate seeing him in other movies. He's so ingrained in my mind as Daniel, the hunchback from house of Frankenstein and from unfortunately Dracula versus Frankenstein. And that is, uh, for me, it's hard to watch uh, him in that role. But so I, I see him in a somewhat normal role comparatively. And it's, I don't know, it's a little unsettling for me, but I, I enjoy in the more movies I see of him in different roles, I'm, you know, getting more comfortable with it. But uh, he, yeah, he's good. Well, and we're going to be seeing more of Jay Carroll Nash over the next couple of months, as we'll talk about what we've got lined up for the next two months. You've got the character of Stella Madden, and this one is played by Patricia Morrison. Some familiar films around the time, uh, Dressed to Kill, which was a Sherlock Holmes movie, uh, Song of the Thin Man. She was in Tarzan and the Huntress. Tarzan is another film series we're going to talk about a lot today. You've got David Bruce as the character of Robert Duvall, best known for his role in The Mad Ghoul. Ramsey Ames as Maria Steele, the wife of Dr. Mark Steele, best known for her role in The Mummy's Ghost. The writers and directors, too, involved in this film series were just definitely within the genre. And, and Reginald LeBorg was the director of the first three films in the Inner Sanctum film series. And he's got is a that, pretty- uh, Is that our first Star Trek reference, Borg? 
That may be the only Star Trek reference, but I'll take it. Yes. Definitely several movies that people will remember that he did. Jungle Woman, again, The Mummy's Ghost. He did The Black Sleep in 56. Voodoo Island in 57 with Boris Karloff. Diary of a Madman in 63 with Vincent Price. He did do some scenes. He was brought in to kind of help the failing House of the Black Death in 65, which I've never seen, but it is sitting on my DVR. I recorded it off Film Detective. That's got Lon Chaney Jr. and John Carradine in it. <laughs> Last movie was uh, in 1974, So Evil My Sister, which I've never heard of before, but now I'm curious. The picture they have on IMDb looks frightening. So I'm like, okay, I'm kind of interested in it. He died in 1989 at the age of 86. So he lived a long life and has uh, lots of credits in the horror genre, including the first three films in this film series. This first movie was written by Edward Dean, who also did Jungle Woman, The Cat Creeps, also did Curse of the Undead in the late 50s or 59. It's kind of like the last of the last, of the universal horror film. So a lot of of behind the scenes cred goes into this and really all six movies getting this theory series started off. You know, this was not one of my, wasn't one of my personal favorites. What did you think of it? Uh, I know I just made a big deal with you before we recorded about not sharing our rankings till the end, but I think it's appropriate to say this was my least favorite. (laughs) I have it at the bottom of my list. I really had a tough time getting antsy and squirmy. All of these movies are just over an hour, barely. I think at that, they're all just a little bit long. I think if they could each have been trimmed, maybe even been in some type of television series with commercial breaks, some of them are a lot of fun. I'm not saying I don't like them. I'm just making that comment. And this one in particular to me seemed very slow. I think some worked well for me in that 62 minute time frame. Others struggled a little bit to try to fill up the time frame. And for me, this one kind of coming out of the gate was a weaker entry in the series for me. I, I would agree. It, it could have been edited down a little bit, but you don't get movies at less than an hour. Very, very rarely do you get a, a film, even a, even what would be a B film, right? They would always try to get at least at 61, 62, 63 minutes. There's a, a few exceptions that come in, crank in at, at less than an hour, but very few, far and few between. It was nice to see, though, I mean, Lon Chaney kind of playing the the dashing lead in this one, I think personally sets the bar lower so that you've got bigger and better things coming in the film series. It's not my, yeah, I would call this my least favorite. I've got my rankings and I'm subject to change and I just changed it. I would, I would say this is my least favorite. And now we're going to save that for the end, but we'll try not to reveal any others along the way, but it's safe to say this is my least favorite. And it's the most plot holes, too. These all deal, well, they're mysteries, so, you know, sort of a whodunit to it. And some of them, it's a little easier to figure out. Some of them are really pretty clever. You can't figure it out. This one was very easy for me to figure it out. I don't know. I made several notes about plot holes, which I don't usually like to do. And as far as Cheney being the leading man, yes, but not a strong leading man. I mean, in almost all of these movies, he's... 
sort of a potential victim. He's kind of, he's not real aggressive. He's just kind of like backs up. Well, maybe I did it. You know, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't know. He's a, a softer, gentler leading man, I guess. Well, I, I would, yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. It troubled in, in most of these films, stronger in some than others, depending on the movie and the circumstances. Obviously, he's always getting wrapped up in some type of incident or whatever. And some of the movies, I think that he knows that he's not necessarily at fault or guilty of whatever the crime is. Well, that's the thing. He's not, he doesn't even know in some of these. He's like, well, maybe, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> a few of them are done different, you know, and so it kind of depends on as we work our way through. This one, I would agree from a mystery perspective, was was probably the weakest. And I would agree with you on, on some of the some of the plot holes. It, it was a weak start to the film series, yet still fun. I still oh, yeah. It definitely picks up quite a bit. With the next film, the second film really sets the bar a lot higher and not sure that it ever surpasses that bar again. When you start off with with this one, it did what it needed to do. It it started off the film series. Clearly, they were cranking these out because, you know, the, the next film comes out, what, three months later. They knew what they were doing. They like, well, we're going to do another one, another one. I think if at any point the film series started to wane, we wouldn't have got six movies. So this one might not have performed as well in the box office, but they were already already well underway with the next one. And the next one, of course, de- definitely, as I said, sets the bar a lot higher. All in all, I would agree with you is his characters in these are weaker sometimes. I mean, I guess you know, he's the lead man. Is he the strong lead? It varies. I think there, there's a couple of these films I would say that he's a strong man leading man in a couple of these unfortunately there's some twists along the way that kind of take that away a little bit i'm talking specifically like the last two films but i think in the next one i think he plays a much stronger i think he's much stronger in the next one you're right and that's interesting that i'm not going too far ahead but i believe in general most people believe the next one is the best Maybe that's because, partially because of Lon Chaney being a stronger character and not so milk toast, you know? I don't know. As we get onto that one, I mean, you're dealing with some, some pretty good source material, too. This one, you've got Edward Dean. Uh, this is his only, making sure this is his only entry in the series. I think, I think that it is. He doesn't come back to write another one. And the fact is, is that, you know, he's got some... Not blockbuster credits to his name, but he's got a few other films. Curse of the Undead is a fun film. You know, I mean, I remember that one. Cat Creeps, it's been so long since I've seen that one, I really can't remember. But it came in, what, 48? So that was kind of at the end of the horror cycle. Jungle Woman, that trilogy gets probably more hate than love. I'm really looking forward to when we dive into that. It'll be interesting when we do that next month, maybe kind of take a look at where the strengths and the weaknesses of that film. Cause I do like Reginald the Borg, obviously directing the first three films, solid director had lots of, of creds working with, with horror actors. And so not necessarily always working with a list material, but I think a very solid B list director. When you take a look at like the fact that he's, he did half the film series. There's only so much you can do with the source material. I think what he did, I think it was filmed well. 
it looks like a universal film, right? Looks, sounds, has that feel. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to crank out movies that were entertaining. Some were going to be bigger hits than others. Calling Dr. Death, weaker start to the film series, but there were bigger and better things on the way. Richard, I have a burning question. Yes. What in the world was going on in 1943? <laughs> you had me go. I was like, I don't know. What's the burning question? I'm prepared. Well, you know what? I happen to know what was going on in 1943. Tell us. War. We were at war. World War II, obviously, was, was continuing to rage on. This is something I didn't know, though. The Great Depression is considered to have officially ended in 1943. I thought that it was officially over before that, but technically it ends in 43 because of where like the employment and unemployment numbers were at. 1943, we had a lot of you know men and women overseas. So they were technically employed now. They were in the military. And you also had a lot of people working at home Women who normally weren't working, you know, were now working in factories. And so that helped the unemployment numbers decrease and officially brought an end to the Great Depression. Hmm. Meanwhile, of course, World War II, as I said, was raging on. This was the year in which there were kind of the first signs that the tide was turning towards the Allies. Obviously, the early years of the war were not good, starting with, for the U.S., certainly Pearl Harbor and 1942, the U.S. now into World War II, and considering the fact that Germany was just still rampaging, and now Japan was, was causing problems in the Pacific. 43 was where we started to see, hey, you know what, we might, maybe, we're not at the end of this yet, but... We're getting a few victories, and one of the biggest victories in 43 came when the German and Italian forces in North Africa surrendered. Also in Italy, the Italian forces surrendered. Now, the leader was Benito Mussolini. He ended up being installed as a leader, kind of like a puppet leader by the Germans in the northern end of Italy. So it wasn't like Italy was liberated in 43. But Mussolini was formally taken out of power and then became more of just a, a puppet by the Germans. You also had General Dwight D. Eisenhower became the first Supreme Allied Commander, which ultimately played a big part in his becoming uh, president of the United States eventually. At home, you had car manufacturers were now producing airplane and bomb parts. The Pentagon was completed in 1943. World leaders of the day, we're going to know all these names. Adolf Hitler in Germany, Benito Mussolini for the first six months or so in Italy, Marshal Pietro Badoglio, or Badoglio, I don't know how to pronounce that entirely, and I don't know that name, but anyway, <laughs> he was the prime minister in the second half of the year for Italy. You had, of course, Tojo in Japan, you had Joseph Stalin in Russia, you had Winston Churchill in the UK, and FDR in the US. These are legendary figures, some of the most memorable leaders in the history of the world. Rationing became normal in 1943 on items like shoes, canned food, meat, cheese, butter, and cooking oils. This reminds me of a funny meme I saw today where somebody said, 
March 2021, pretty much the same as 2020, except we have toilet paper now. <laughs> Very accurate, actually. Gas was 15 cents, Coke was 5 cents, and an average annual wage was $2,000. I don't know about you, but I would be living high off the hog in 1943. That'd be awesome. Little thing called inflation, unfortunately, and it doesn't quite match up. Anyway, pennies switched from copper to steel due to copper shortages. Copper would resume in 1944. I actually have a couple of steel pennies uh, Mm. from my dad's penny collection. The All-American Girls Professional Baseball League is formed to help fill empty stadiums. The (laughs) Jefferson Memorial is completed after starting construction in 1938. On Broadway, the musical Oklahoma debuted on March 31st, created by Rodgers and Hammerstein, ran for a record-breaking 15 years with 2,212 performances. Chevy Chase, Mick Jagger, and Robert De Niro were born in 1943. Popular songs of the day included Stormy Weather by Lena Horne, All or Nothing at All by Frank Sinatra, Don't Get Around Much Anymore by The Ink Spots, That Old Black Magic by Glenn Miller, and I'll Be Home for Christmas by Bing Crosby. Top movies included Casablanca, which won for Best Film of the Year, Mr. Lucky with Cary Grant, For Whom the Bell Tolls with Cary with Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman, the anthology film Flesh and Fantasy, which is sometimes referred to as the first supernatural anthology series. It's not a full-blown horror movie like Dead of Night, but it's also not a straightforward dramatic anthology. Ever seen Flesh and Fantasy? Yeah, that's, that's not a bad film. Also released this year was The Dancing Masters with Laurel and Hardy and Destination Tokyo with Cary Grant. Top horror movies included Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, I Walked with a Zombie, The Seventh Victim, Sherlock Holmes Faces Death, Son of Dracula, and The Ghost Ship. So that's what was happening in 1943, and now it is March 1st, 1944. This is the Inner Sanctum. Jungle gods. You don't know what you're doing. I do. Domino. Woman or witch, temptress or killer, weaving a death curse with the black magic of an ancient cult. Starring Lon Chaney, Anne Gwynn, Evelyn Anchors, with Lois Collier, Ralph Morgan, Elizabeth Risden, Elizabeth Russell. This house is full of something evil. Evil. Yes, it's you. Don't. Why are you terrorizing my wife? I don't even care anymore what people are saying, laughing at me. Oh, stop it. I never asked for such devotion from you, and I don't want it. Answer. Hello? Sociology professor Lon Chaney Jr. experiences sudden success at work, his native wife believes it's due to her beliefs and superstitions. When he insists she destroy her talismans and medallions, bad things start happening to them.
I mentioned that most people say that this is the best of the series. I believe it is the best made, the most solid, but it's not my favorite. Oh, wow. So there you go. I, I will give away that this is my favorite, but not by huge leaps over what I have in two and three in my favorites. The top three films of the, that I, for me, of the series are all very closely connected with one reason or another that one is below or under the other. Interesting, when I started watching Weird Woman, I didn't catch that it was based on the book Conjure Wife by uh, Fritz Lieber Jr. And I didn't know that it had been made into a movie called Night of the Eagle or Burn Witch Burn in 1962. As we were watching the film, Carla was the first one that said, you know, this seems really similar to a movie we watched a few months back. And I was like, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. And then it was like, Burn Witch Burn. We just watched that because I got it on Blu-ray and it was part of our Halloween movies. Did the research and sure enough. That's why I maybe didn't like it as much. I think my expectations were higher. So if you have seen Burn Witch Burn, and hopefully you have, if not, you should, you will obviously catch on similarities. So we have a familiar story, yet different. We have Lon Chaney Jr. as Norman Reed and Anne Gwynn as his wife, Paula. He is on a mission in the jungles and witnesses a ceremony and ends up falling in love with the native girl. Paula brings her back to civilization. And of course, she has her, her witchy ways about her. Less of a witch and more of like tribal beliefs, I guess, really. Voodoo, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit of voodoo, yeah. But not a witch. Not not like, you know, burn witch burn. It's, it's more along the lines of voodoo or tribal beliefs. Well, it's more along the lines of a weird woman. <laughs> it is, absolutely. <laughs> and although the neighbor lady, or I don't know if it was a neighbor lady, someone did call her a witch wife. He has a witch wife, you know. Yeah, she did. Yeah, that was their kind of trying to connect it, I guess. I wouldn't have referred to her as, as a witch, no. per se. Not, not in the traditional terms. You've got, uh, and of course, let's just talk about Anne Gwynn for a second. Very familiar actress, again, if you're watching films around this time. She was in Black Friday, Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, the Black Cat 41 version, a film we just recently did in the last year or so, Strange Case of Dr. Rx. She was in House of Frankenstein. She was also Tess Trueheart in Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome, the best of the Dick Tracy film series because it's got Boris Karloff playing gruesome. You've got a few people, one woman in particular, who is not really happy that Norman came back with his wife, Paula, because she had aspirations of being Mrs. Reed. We're talking about, was it pronounced Iona? Iona Carr or Ilona? Il- Ilona, I believe. Ilona, okay. Ilona Carr, I can remember, played by... Evelyn Anchors, very prolific actress around this time period, Wolfman, Ghost Frankenstein, Sherlock Holmes, The Voice Terror, Captive Wild Woman, Son of Dracula, Mad Ghoul, and Tarzan's Magic Fountain. Not the only time we'll be talking about Tarzan and his Magic Fountain. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> so Evelyn Anchors uh, obviously had worked with Lon Chaney Jr. before. Did not like working with Lon Chaney Jr., yet she continued to work with him. 
she found him to be rather brutish. She did not really care for him and at all, but you couldn't tell by watching it on screen. They kind of had a screen chemistry in a weird kind of way, despite the fact they clearly did not enjoy working together. You had the character of Professor Millard Sautel, played by Ralph Morgan, familiar name, familiar face, night monster, monster maker, the creeper. Uh, His wife, Evelyn, played by Elizabeth Russell, very unique facial structure. She was in films like Bedlam, Cat People, Curse of the Cat People, The Uninvited, The Seventh Victim, and The Corpse Vanishes. The character of Grace Gunnison was played by Elizabeth Risden. She was the representative at the school. She was like, not the, not the dean, but she, she held some position there. I can remember what her title was. She was in High Sierra and the Canterville Ghost. Margaret, that was the young girl, right, who yes. had desires for Norman Reed, uh, played by Lois Collier. She was in Jungle Woman, <laughs> right in Casablanca, and The Cat Creeps. Do you see these same titles coming up? We're only two films in. Phil Brown, this is interesting. So Phil Brown played David Jennings, her boyfriend. Do you know what he did? Phil Brown, two roles from the late 70s that people remember him for, one of which he was a state senator in Superman the movie, the other of which he is definitely well known for. Oh. Uncle Owen from Star Wars. Here's a cool story. And Gwen was actually married to, or not married, but had a relationship supposedly with Phil Brown. And Gwen is the grandmother of Chris Pine, Captain Kirk from Star Trek, amongst other more recent roles. Phil Brown's not related, but they supposedly they were in a relationship. I read that in an off and one thing. And so I first thought that, well, does that mean that he's like Chris Pine? But no, it's not. Hmm. Um, but they supposedly were connected and then but mostly yeah i thought it was kind of cool that she was the grandmother yeah yeah uncle owen in star wars though phil brown i thought that was kind of cool the movie this movie was adapted by scott darling now he had 197 film credits including ghost of frankenstein sherlock holmes and the secret weapon charlie chan at the opera three mr wong films and four of the last films with laurel and hardy The screenplay was done by Brenda Weisberg, who also did The Mad Ghoul, The Scarlet Claw, and The Mummy's Ghost. And of course, Le Borg was back as the director of this film. Here's a fun little story. Evelyn Ankers and Anne Gwynn were actually best friends in real life. So when they were having their scenes against each other, Evelyn loved playing the part of a villain. But when she was playing the villain opposite... Paula, the character of Paula Reed, her friend and Gwen, they couldn't keep their characters straight. They started laughing all the time because she was being so mean and, and Anne Gwen just thought it was funny. And so apparently it caused a lot of reshoots whenever they were playing their scenes. It sounded like it was probably a, a kind of a fun situation. We talked about the novel, which was done again in 62. Did you know that it was also done again in 1980? Witches Brew, more of a spoof this time with Richard Benjamin and Terry Garr. I've never seen that, have you? I have not. I remember the VHS cover box. I didn't even remember that. I really enjoyed Weird Woman. I enjoyed the differences when compared to Burn Witch Burn. I really love Burn Witch Burn. That's a, that's a classic film. 
And there's certainly elements of that that elevate that movie above what Weird Woman is, which is clearly a B movie. Yet, I, there's parts of Weird Woman that I almost like better. Mm. I like the idea that, it, it, you know, her being like the kind of the voodoo and tribal stuff. I love the witch part of it, but this one, I, I don't know. It just kind of made for some some cool differences in the way that it was presented instead of you know him trying to end her witchy ways he's trying to say look you know this is all tribal voodoo this isn't impacting you know us at all i don't know i i just like the way that worked i really like the whole concept of she's putting so much stock into these things causing him to be a success and poor guy he's just like did it ever occur to you that i earned my success myself that's just kind of funny to me because she doesn't. I mean, she's so sure no. that she has caused this for no, him. No, you were nothing before I met. Yeah, yeah. But it's not in a, she's not an evil person. I mean, she has good intentions. Yeah, there was, there was no evil intentions involved. And I think that the way that Anne Gwynn approached it came across as less frantic. I mean, she was certainly oh, like, what did you do? Whereas comparing to like Burn Witch Burn, right, where Janet Blair, I think, was the, the the actress. I mean, her portrayal was Peter Wingard was a lot harsher, I think, in that movie than Lon Chaney is in this one. And whereas Janet Blair was much more frantic, like, oh, my God, what did you do? Because clearly she's the witch and she's no she knows what she's done because it's witchcraft. Whereas I think that Paula, she had her beliefs and she's like, definitely, this is what caused it. You know, I don't know. There was less franticness, though. And and when she realizes what's been done and and almost, I don't know, there's a certain remorse because she when she starts feeling like certain things happen, like when the professor commits suicide, it comes across differently than it does in Burn Witch Burn, which is why I think the parts of this movie that I like better. I wonder if it's a sign of the times. Maybe, you know, she was more how women were in those days. She's less, she's almost when he takes her things away and they destroy him, like, oh, I wish she wouldn't do that, but you're right. Go ahead. She's not too upset. You know, 20 years later with Burn Witch Burn, you mentioned the franticness and everything. She's more more of a dominant character. Yeah, and I think that, you know, also, I mean, she, she she had gone from the tribal life, right? And then it comes into civilization, as you were. I mean, so clearly she sees the different world around her. She still has her beliefs, but at the same time, she can't deny that there are things that she doesn't know and that she's just now learning about, as opposed to the witch, Janet Blair. I mean, she, her character, I'm a witch and I know what I do. And this is my world. She's not discovering a new world like Paula Reed is in this one. She She's discovering this new world and is trying to find her place in it. I think there is maybe some doubt on her part. Well, maybe she, she believes, but in the same token, she, she loves her husband and she's like trying to kind of grasp this non-voodoo world that she's entering. Very different, I think, for her as Janet Blair was like, nope, nope, this is, this is witchcraft. I did this and you just screwed up. Why do you think everything had, because I did this for you. She's much more convincing, right? Because she's like, she knows what she did with the witchcraft. 
Whereas Paula, in her mind, she knows what she did, but then because she's experiencing all these other new things, she begins to doubt. At least that's the way I perceived it. And yeah, she, no, she was doubting. I think I learned a new word in this. Oh, what? Twaddle. <laughs> Do you know that word? I have actually heard that word before. Yeah, it's when uh, Margaret, the the girl who likes the professor, you know, puts her hand on his arm and yeah. he says, none of that romantic twaddle. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that he's just so oblivious, right? Typical guy, <laughs> I guess, you know, that's what, that's what Carla said. Typical man. It's like, it's right there in front of you. And then when it happens, you're like, what? I, I, what? what are you doing? And is it so obvious in the minute she walked in the room, it was like... Oh, Dr. Professor Reed, whatever. Yeah, it was It was kind of like, come on. It was like, how could you not, how could you be that blind? How could your nose be that firm in the book? I thought, again, you, you got a great cast. And again, enhanced, I think, because Anne Gwynn was great. I think in her role, I think Evelyn Anchors and, and Elizabeth Russell. This is the Artist Lon Chaney Jr. is blinded. He's given hope that cornea transplants may be able to cure him. However, when the man who offers to donate his eyes dies unexpectedly, it appears that Chaney lost his patience waiting for him to pass naturally. Richard, I love the setup of this one. It's my least favorite of the six, believe it or not. Oh, well, here we go then. Uh, No, of all these movies I watched and, you know... Yeah, you're not going to believe this. I actually told three different people about this movie. I'm like, I watched this really cool movie last night. You know, Lon Chaney Jr. is an artist. At the end of the day, his eyes are tired. So he, he does, uh, what was it, muratic or some kind of acid, but it's yeah. not really acid. It's what's in eye drops. You know, he puts them on cloths, puts on his eyes. Well, one night his assistant messes, she's rummaging around in the cabinet. She changes the bottles and he grabs it. And he puts real acid in his eyes and he's blind. And then this great new technology of cornea transplants. And a man even actually says, you know, when I die, you can have my eyes. And he's not that far from death. Well, he dies unexpectedly. So everyone thinks he did. I mean, it's a great setup. I love it. I have to admit, the setup is good. The The premise I thought was unique. Probably, I mean, when you look at all the different setups in these movies, they're all unique to one degree or another. But I, I don't know that we've, seen something this like this done in another movie necessarily oh, there's a lot of movies about eyes and blind but, but not, not in this like exact me. way yeah yeah not that exact way yeah that, i thought that was a unique way for him to become blinded yeah we've we've seen the blind man and yeah that's that's been done in other in other movies or television shows but i thought it was done uniquely in this one yeah for some reason though maybe it was the cast in this one so Lon Chaney Jr. plays Dave Stewart, you know, the the artist. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Gene Parker as Heather Hayden, his, the girlfriend, fiance. 
for some reason, I just didn't connect with her in this hmm. movie. And, well, now, her character, they is it's kind of she's not really too active in the story. I mean, we know they're together, but he makes a decision to cut it off when he's blind because he thinks he doesn't want her to, you know, she doesn't have as much to do. I'm not arguing with you. I'm just saying, I think, I don't think her role is as important or big as the woman in the other movies. No, you're right. And I think that's, maybe that's why I'm kind of like, I don't know. She just, she didn't come across quite as strong. I am familiar with the actress though. I thought she looked familiar. And then when I did the research, she was in a couple of Lauren Hardy films. Well, she was in an Oliver Hardy film in 1939 called Zenobia. And it was a film that he was contractually obligated to do. Stan Laurel had fulfilled his contract, but Oliver Hardy had one more movie on his contract. He was forced to do Zenobia. It's an okay movie, but obviously he, he's paired in that film with Harry Langdon, a, a former silent film comedian, they're not really a pair and it just, it doesn't work as well. She plays his wife in that one. And then the next movie, the flying deuces, she plays his love interest, but she is married to a, I think it's like a captain in the French foreign legion. She had been kind of leading him on. And then she's like, you know, I have a boyfriend. And then of course he meets the captain, but has no idea who each other are. And he's like, well, if you're trying to get away from woman, go to the foreign legion. And of course, they go and realize that now their commanding officer is this guy. Flying Deuces is one of their best films. She plays the yeah less than less than pleasant female lead in that one. She was also in One Body Too Many, which is a fun horror comedy with Lugosi, which came out I think around the same time, early to mid forties. You've got the uh, subject of his artwork, Tanya Zaraki. Played there's by- an Academy Award winning actress. <laughs> played by Aquanetta. We will see more of Aquanetta when we do our Captive Jungle Wild Woman series. No, she's not going to win any Academy Awards, but she just, I uh, her character too is kind of like, I'm trying to find sympathy, you know, with, with, you know, who am I supposed to feel sympathetic for? I didn't feel it for Heather Hayden. I didn't feel it for Tanya, you know, clearly. Cause then of course, you know, I will take care of you. Yeah, well, that's kind of what you want anyway, you know. And and then I don't really, I don't even feel really sorry for Dave Stewart because even though, I mean, he's blinded and that's horrible. But then he's like, because of that, you know, he he spurns Heather Hayden and, and turns, which I guess I could, it's convincing, I suppose. You know, that be your action is, you know, I, you know, I, how can you marry me? I'm, I'm blind. I get that. It just kind of like he kind of turned a little bit and was like, well, am I supposed to feel sorry for him or sympathetic? Because he's being kind of a jerk. I had I just I struggled with this one with that with that. And, and you know, you do have the police captain, Captain Drury, played by Thomas Gomez. I thought this was interesting. His first movie was Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror. He was also in the climax with Boris Karloff. One of his last movies was as a minister in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Wow. Isn't that an interesting mm-hmm. book into your career? So you've got the character of Alan Bittaker, played by Paul Kelly. Alan was the friend that had the, the hots for Tanya. He had 173 acting credits dating all the way back to 1911. He was 12 years old 
but he, his career ended rather early, 1956. He was uh, 57, died of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And then you have another interesting one here. So you have Heather's father, Stanley Hayden, played by Edward Fielding. His very first role was in a movie that Carla and I just watched, and I didn't realize it was the same person. He played Dr. Watson in the 1916 film Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. This was a uh, the first film version of the William Gillette Sherlock Holmes play that popularized the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle character on stage. William Gillette had played the lead role on stage and in 1916 played it in the film. So it's essentially the only known film footage of Gillette as Sherlock Holmes in what is a very close representation of the stage play. Hmm. And the stage play itself would be done again in 1922 with John Barrymore in the lead, and again in 1981 with Frank Langella playing Sherlock Holmes. This movie was one of his last movies. He died uh, in 1945 at the age of 69 of a heart attack. You know me and death. I love to, to share when these people died. So the movie was written by Dwight V. Babcock. That is a familiar name, and, and he does pop up again. We will hear his name again before we finish out this film series. So Dwight V. Uh, Babcock, this was his very first film, but he did Mummy's Curse, Jungle Captive, House of Dracula, The Brute Man. So familiar to horror genre fans. And of course, this was the third and final film for Reginald Leborg directing. Again, you got a good cast, other than, for whatever reason, Gene Parker just kind of ruined this movie for me. I hmm. For some reason, if a different actress would have been in that role and I would have felt a little more sympathetic to her plight, and if maybe Lon Chaney wouldn't have been quite as much of, a, of an asshole to her at times, I might have liked this movie better. I know that some people love this movie and consider it one of the best in the series. For some reason, it's, it's, it's charm is missing. In me. That said, I didn't dislike it. I love all six of these films. It's just that this one is the one that I have probably the most problems with besides calling Dr. Death. Those are the two that, that I struggle with the most. And this has some of those, I wouldn't call them plot holes, but like kind of silly plot points or overlooked points. But for some reason, I, I don't know, just because of the setup, I, I, I can't say I enjoyed him, but it's more of like, oh, look, look at that, ha ha, rather than I can't believe they did that, you know? I mean, I don't know. I just, it, I took to this one much, much better. A, a couple of those things that, well, a couple of things. So first of all, he gets acid in his eyes. And when you first see him, he's, his whole skin is like mm, yeah. scarred and he has his surgery and it's like, oh, they fixed that too. You know, he must've had plastic surgery as well. Cause not only did he get eyes, so maybe it was burned and it got better, you know, maybe, but it sure looked like it was acid burn. I'm like, what happened to his burns? That was one thing. And, and, and this cracked me up and this is silly. The key clue to the mystery is a little threaded nail. And I'm like, hmm, do you mean a screw? What is a little threaded nail? A screw? And then, you know, to think that Lon Chaney would recognize that as the screw from a certain man's walking stick. I mean, that is totally far-fetched. But it didn't bother me. I, I thought it was fun. Now, I have heard, and I'm not, I'm not a... a, uh, <laughs> a uh, 
you know, a wood maker, wood maker's present. I can't even, I don't even know the term, a carpenter, you know, uh, or cabinet maker or what have you. I do think there is a thing though, back then, especially called threaded nails. So there's oh, no okay. screw. It's a nail that has like threads on it. And then as you hammer it, it, it basically is supposed to get a tighter fit or tighter connection, you know, tighter. I apologize. That was probably on. a great statement. I could be wrong. No, but, I bet you're right. But I think that's, that's where they were going with that. Yeah. It was more of a thing back then because now, of course, instead of using that, you would use a screw, right? If you wanted to, more, if you wanted to get in the threads into yeah. the wood. So that makes sense. There's a little more humor in this that I think increases as we go through the rest of the series. At least I thought it was humorous. You know, of course, Lon Chaney becomes the main suspect uh, in the death. And when he learns that he could get this operation and not only that, he can get some eyes. He says there is hope if Dad Hayden is dead. And I don't remember if anyone was around there or not, but that's like you just convicted yourself, you know, by uttering those words out loud. And this makes me think we're, we're like three movies in and we haven't mentioned that the whispering that, that Lon Chaney oh. does in these films. Gosh, we should have mentioned that in the very yeah. first time. The inner monologue that yes. we hear done to better effect in some movies over others. But it's carried all the way through. I think it happens in all six movies, It doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a little different in the last one, I think, but it is you're right. That is... Yeah. And then, like I said, it's, it's done more effectively in some than others. And sometimes it's, it's a little funny the way, you know, because it's coming across as a little melodramatic, you know, did I kill him? I, I don't know if I killed him. It's like, what if I killed him? You know, it, <laughs> it, it, it is funny in some of the films, but it, that's a, that's kind of unique. Cause I, I know that that's done in other films. I'm trying to think if it was done in other universal horror films and I'm drawing a blank if it was, I, I can't think of any other universal horror film that, that did that. I know I've seen it, obviously, in, in movies and TV shows, but not through an entire film series like this, even though the characters are different. It was clearly, I want to say that was kind of a bleed over from the radio show a little bit, because obviously on radio shows, you have a lot of inner monologue yeah. to help the story move along. And that was probably intentional when they were making these films was to include that inner monologue to add that extra level of narrative to the, to the story. Another line I liked was when he wakes up in the, well, and then there's the whole other layer of, I thought it was very clever that he could see, but he didn't tell anyone. And we didn't even really know that he could see after the operation. I thought, yeah, but he had had the operation. People thought he couldn't see. He's being investigated for this murder, and the police captain says to him, you'll be seeing me. I just thought that was funny because he's saying that to a blind man, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then my final comment is something that started with this one, and I believe it goes through the rest of them, is the spinning headlines that come. Yeah. And I think that gives the illusion of the movie going faster. It's like, there's so much going on. We can't squeeze it in an hour. We're going to spin the headlines and jump ahead a plot point, you know? I always love that when that's in movies and it just makes you aware, wow, these people are more important than we thought because they all get front page headlines when something happens to them. That's true, yeah. You know, it, I suppose they could have stretched these movies out, right? If they didn't do the headlines, you could, you know, but then they would have really suffered from padding at that point. 
So as much as, as you said, you felt like these could have been a little shorter. Most of them were, were right about the right pace. This was the one for me, this and Calling Dr. Death are the two that I, I felt like the pacing was the, I don't want to say the worst, but I guess technically the worst of the, of the six films, hmm. simply because I, I felt like maybe, maybe you could have shaved a little bit off, but you know, I don't know, not much. I think collectively, I think that the running time was right on these films, but if I had to say one or two of the films was, could have had maybe a little shaved off, it would be calling Dr. Death or, or Dead Man's Eyes. Yeah. I don't know. I compare this to sort of a hit pop song, you know? It's like, the song's not very good, but man, it has a great hook. <laughs> I just, I really got into the setup and really enjoyed that. Yeah, again, you know, like, as, as I said, with especially with Calling Dr. Death, while even though this may be one of my least favorites, I still enjoy the heck out of it. Uh, it had a few things that I struggled with that ultimately cause it to be at the bottom of the list, right, uh, compared to the other films. I still enjoyed, even though Lon Chaney Jr. in this one was probably, again, one of the more less likable characters for me. Um, I, for You know, I, I still enjoyed his portrayal. Uh, I still enjoyed seeing him on screen. So I, for me, I guess that this one, again, like I said, I think Gene Parker, for whatever reason, was the weak spot for me. But well, the, overall, the cast isn't as strong. I mean, no. names are not as recognizable or familiar as these others that are just packed with great character actors. Yeah, yeah. But I don't care. I I really liked this one. <laughs> no, like I said, I still enjoyed it, even yeah. though it was, you know, not my favorite of the bunch. All six of these films are well worth watching, even though we, we when we do our ratings, especially keep in mind, number six is still a good movie and, and well worth checking out. Is that it for Dead Man's Eyes then? That is for it. Wow, for we Dead whizzed Man's through that one. We, we move on to uh, June 1st, 1945, a movie that I saw the poster art for in a famous Monsters magazine uh, in the late 1970s, and it always stuck with me. And for many years, I tried to find where this, what was this movie? And for whatever reason, you know, I, I just always kept evading me until I got the Inner Sanctum set, because I did not get these on VHS. My first time watching Inner Sanctum was the DVD set. Then I saw The Frozen Ghost, and then I was like, oh my gosh, this is the movie that I saw the poster art for in Famous Monsters at that point, gosh, 20 plus years earlier. Frozen Ghost has always kind of struck with me, and it's probably why it, it kind of ranks in the top half of my favorites. Don't be too sure of your answer. You may change your mind. The Inner Sanctum has a story for you of hypnotic horror in which murder is done by the mind. This man's dead. Still think you killed that man with your eyes? Shut up and let me alone, will you? What I do is my business. I don't care what you do. But get this straight, as long as I'm around here, you're gonna leave this girl alone. You killed her! Nina! Don't come near me! Don't touch oh, me! Nina. 
Instrumentalist Lon Chaney Jr. believes his mind has the power to kill, so he isolates himself in his friend's creepy wax museum. There, he meets a cast of equally creepy characters, and strange things continue to happen to him. You know, this is one, by the time we finish talking about it, I think I'm going to like it more than I thought I did. But I did not, I came in prepared to talk about it, not particularly liking it too much. What did you think of it? I enjoyed this one. Not perfect, but it does rank in my top three, more or less, top Four, top three, it depends on how it pans out. My end of this, when we get to the end of this discussion, there may be some changes. I like the setup in this one. The wax museums, wax museums are always fun. Martin Kozlek is just a creepy character, right? I mean, he, he just plays a, a creepy character. There is some odd plot developments. The transition to the, the wax museum setting and why... Gregor the Great is there. To me, I, at first I was kind of like, how did we get here? Wait a minute. This is, it felt like a jump mm-hmm. to me. I was kind of like, okay, well, we needed to get into a wax museum and that's what it felt like. So I was like, we, we want to do a wax museum movie. How do we get from point A to point B? We're going to get from point A to point C and we'll just kind of graze over point B. And to me, it, it felt like, I don't know. It, it, it did feel like there was a bit of a jump to get to that setting. Once we were there, I was, you know, kind of fully into it. And there was some cool twists and stuff along the way that I have to admit I didn't see coming. So it's just always kind of fun when you're watching these movies. You know, we have Lon Chaney Jr. in this one is Alex Gregor, otherwise known as Gregor the Great, the mentalist. He's playing it up, right? I mean, at the beginning of the film, and that's the whole question, right? Is does he really have mental powers or is it just circumstance? And I'm not, what do you think? Did, did you think he had mental powers or was it just circumstance? Uh, see, that's part of the thing I didn't like. It was all very fuzzy because then, you know, Evelyn Anchors is more his, that I don't, I don't understand the whole thing. Like, does he hypnotize her or does he summon and it speaks through her? I didn't know how that worked. They didn't really um, explain that very well. Um, I don't, I do think he had powers. I don't think they were extreme like he thought they were. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, cause it's just, it is so vague, right? It's one of those left up to your interpretation and even the end of the movie, right? I mean, it's kind of like he, he says, but it's like, well, it's kind of like, you know, a magician will say, well, it's magic, you know, well, knowing what's, you know, behind the curtain. I, I wish they would have maybe explained that just a little more. It didn't detract from the film for me. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's a main plot point, but yet that's sort of irrelevant. It's more that he believes he does. And yes. that's kind of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, for me, the the Wax Museum setting and Martin Koslick's character make up for some of the plot holes that are clearly present in this film. We have Evelyn Anchors back playing the character of Maura Daniel. Yeah, not a villain in this piece. Not as likable as maybe in some of her other films, but not not the villain. She was actually pregnant at the time of filming, which is why you would often see her behind coats, mufflers, and a bag of apples. (laughs) So uh, they were trying to cover up the baby. (laughs) We have Milburn Stone playing his friend... 
George Keene, Milburn Stone, uh, well-known for fans of uh, Gunsmoke. He was born in 1904 in Burton, Kansas. He was a Kansas native. Mm. He starred in 605 episodes of Gunsmoke as the character of Doc Adams. And besides James Arness, they're the only two actors that appeared in all 20 years of Gunsmoke. Mm. Uh, Even Miss Kitty, for those of you who know Gunsmoke, Miss Kitty was only in the first 19 seasons. She grew tired of the role and left before the final season. Mm. Now, Milburn Stone did miss uh, a handful of episodes in one of the last seasons. He had some heart surgery, but he never left the show. They filled it, had some other doctors come to town, and then he ended up coming back and and wrapping up the series. Only uh, James Arness was in more than, than Milburn Stone. He ended up doing the movies and such. That certainly was his character and very much ingrained into uh, anyone who watched uh, television back in the 50s, 60s, or 70s. He was also, though, in in several Universal films during this time period. He was in Black Friday, Invisible Agent, Captive Wild Woman, The Mad Ghoul, Sherlock Holmes Faces Death. He was in Invaders from Mars. He was also technically in Weird Woman. He was a radio announcer uncredited in Mm. Weird Woman. And we will see Milburn Stone again. Uh, in this one, though, of course, he plays the friend George Keene, who, uh, spoiler alert, might not be who he seems to be. Our inspector, police inspector in this one is Inspector Brandt, played by Douglas Trumbrill. Over 200 credits, character actor. He was in The Cat Creeps. He was also in Mr. Moto and Charlie Chan films. I have yeah. to say I really liked him. Out of all these movies this is one of the few that i really felt like there was a character there and it was simple little things he was always straightening pictures on the wall or doing little sort of like a you know poor man's peter cushing he always had business yeah, or something. Yeah, but yeah. that really gave him character and i really liked him in this i, I would agree i would agree now i, I love jay carroll nash in the first film but simply because of him as an actor and some of the lines he was given but with inspector brant yeah definitely better than the other detectives that we get in some of the other films. You have Elena Verdugo playing the character of uh, Nina, who apparently has the hots for Alex Gregor, but also is the object of Rudy Pollan's affection. We'll have more on Rudy Pollan in a second. If she looked familiar, it's because she played Alonka in House of Frankenstein. And then, Tala Burrell played Madame Valerie Monet. She was in Monster Maker and Power of the Whistler. The Whistler was a radio series and was ended up being a series of six feature films. Uh, the Whistler was always kind of the, the host or narrator introducing a crime drama story. Now, you had the uh, character of Rudy Pollan, the uh, master of the wax museum, if you will, played by the very unique Martin Kozlek. Certainly familiar, anyone who's watched films around this time, he's got a very unique look and and way of performing. He was in Foreign Correspondent, The Mad Doctor, Mummy's Curse, She-Wolf of London, and the Sherlock Holmes film, Pursuit to Algiers. Uh, There's an interview with him as one of the extras on the Inner Sanctum Blu-ray series. It is interesting. He talks about his career, and he does happen to mention he did not really like working with Lon Chaney Jr. Didn't care for him. In fact, he almost... Well, I think as he worded it, he says, well, what I have to say about Lon Chaney Jr., he says, you'd have to edit it out 
he said, so let's just say that I, I didn't enjoy working with him. Mm. He had some strong feelings there. Did What would you feel about if Lugosi had played that role? For uh, some reason, I don't know if it was his performance necessarily or if I just thought, oh, I'd love to see Lugosi in this. But I just yeah. thought of Bella Lugosi every time he was on. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's uh, Yeah, Lugosi could have easily done that. Could have done it at this time point. 45, Lugosi was still... I mean, he was struggling behind the scenes, but he was still able to to look good on screen. You know, he wasn't quite again up until 1948. Lugosi was still had the ability to be a good lead actor. And then his health declined after that, really. Yeah. Yeah. He could have done that. Absolutely. And I could see him pining after Nina, you know, as, as he always seemed to do in some of his films. This movie was written by several people. Henry Sucker, I believe is how it's pronounced, only has eight credits, but they're big ones. Mummy's Tomb, Mummy's Ghost, Captive Wild Woman, Jungle Woman. There was Harrison Carter, who only had three credits to his name, and this is his last movie. Uh, Lucy Ward, who did lots of film westerns, and Bernard Schubert, who did Mummy's Curse and Jungle Woman. I should have won a dollar for every time I say some <laughs> titles over uh, the movie was directed by Harold Young, who directed, take a guess. Uh, jungle Captive Woman. Well, you're a jungle captive in the mummy's tomb. He also did the live action sequences in Walt Disney's The Three Caballeros. Huh. Which is a movie I have not seen since, I think, the 70s. Actually going to be adding it to my collection. It's on my wish list. I'm part of the Disney Movie Club. It's going to be one of the films I'm going to get to fulfill my financial obligation. Anyway, I enjoyed this this one. The cast is a little better in this one, uh, I think, because you got like Evelyn Anchors, Milburn Stone, I think was a solid actor, Martin Kozlek. You've got a good script. And everything's always creepy when you're talking about the Wax Museum. There's some weaknesses, as we said, for me. I, I, Yeah, I agree. I wish they would have defined Lon Chaney's character a little bit better. I wish there would have been a little more explanation as to how, why was he in the Wax Museum? It seemed to be a bit of a stretch, but I did like the twist that happened. I kind of saw it coming, but then when it finally happened, I'm like, okay, that, that kind of works. And for me, I didn't necessarily see it. Did you see it? I don't, I don't recall. Sorry. I mean, I knew I that, yeah, I knew that Martin Kozlik's character, you know, Rudy, I, I mean, he was quirky, but that was like, is he a red herring? Just because he's quirky, does that mean he's really bad? I didn't, spoiler alert, in case you haven't seen these, I did not expect that George Keene would be involved. That was a good twist for me. This one I really enjoyed. Like I said, it, it, it really worked for me. And I think, it, again, probably the Wax Museum setting elevated it for me and helped cover up some of the other plot deficiencies. I will say, I think it's one of the best directed ones. I'm sure they were made very fast, but there's really not much creative with the camera work in these movies. You know, this though starts with the camera swooping down and there was a really interesting shot sort of in the middle where there were three characters, I think. And they, I call them stacked because from back to front, one in front being the closest. And you don't see scenes like that too often. So I thought that was really interesting. It, so that made it a little bit different. I, I think it was better made than some of these. I mentioned I loved the inspector. 
Rudy has the hots for Nina, but yet when he catches her sneaking around, he throws knives at her. Do you think he was just trying to scare her or was he really trying to kill her? And if he was really trying to kill her, it doesn't matter because he was a horrible shot. (laughs) Yeah, that's like, well, you know, sometimes love hurts, I guess. You know, (laughs) it's kind of like he was an odd duck, but it's like, I guess he was trying to scare her. I guess I don't think he was trying to kill her, you know, because I, I think he did have obviously have feelings for her, but he was attracted to her. But then again, I don't know, maybe it was if I can't have you, no one will have you kind of, I don't know. Yeah, that, that was kind of, that's kind of odd. You know, I did like it. I enjoyed it. For some reason, though, it's not high on my list. I really can't pinpoint why. I think it's just like what what my list is going to come down to is entertainment. What was I most, what did I most enjoy watching? And for some reason, this just wasn't one of my favorites. One thing, though, did catch my attention. Here's one of Lon Chaney's, I don't know if it was monologue or a, a line, but he's like, tragedy follows me wherever I go. Who does that sound like? Larry Talbot. Uh, I'm going to say well, Charlie Brown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that sort of sounds like Larry Talbot. So he was yeah. sort of cut out of the same cloth for that character. Yeah, 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 that's true. Okay. Shall <laughs> we go to October 5th, 1945? Uh, why don't we do that? But you know what? Let's take a break first. That sounds good. How many? We've done four, right? We have done four, yes. Right. It's break time, so we'll be right back. When chemist Lon Chaney Jr. learns that his unscrupulous boss sent him to South America so he could manufacture his untested influenza medicine and make a move on his wife, he returns home to experience great tragedy. Talk about a timely plot on this one, right? The, the oh, yeah. influenza vaccine. Yeah, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? I thought, yeah, that that was just very, very timely. Strange Confession, October 5th, 1945. Really like this one, despite the fact that it really doesn't have a happy ending in any way, shape, or form. But I, I like the, the way the actual story itself played out. I wasn't a fan of the of the opening and closing confession part that I didn't like that. It seemed really kind of odd, right? That that the character of Jeff Carter just kind of randomly goes to a friend that they knew each other at one point and then weaves the whole story via flashbacks and then we get to the end of the movie and you know the story wraps up I get it tied into the title, Strange Confession, but I I didn't care for that. I wish they would have just done the movie portion of it and somehow weaved in. You didn't even really have to do the confession. You could have you could have added in like a scene at the end of the movie and you could have done away with the whole confession. Obviously, you would have needed a new title, but the confession part of it to me didn't really add to the film in any way, shape or form. Quick side note, all of these titles are a little weird. You mean Frozen Ghost? What does that really have to do with that? You know, and don't even say Pillow of Death when we get to that one. Well, Frozen Ghost was because it was cold and the body in in the wax museum and the body was in the wax museum. Uh, That's where they got it from, Frozen. It was cold. Yeah, but... Yeah, it was a bit of a stretch. 
Yeah. It sounds cool. That's you just got to go with that. Yeah, um, calling Doctor Death. I don't know. They're just they're sensationalistic names, and I don't think well, they, they are. really have a lot to do with the stories. I actually did like the confession. Okay, or I should say fifty percent of it. I loved the setup. You were really intrigued. You wanted to know what was in that bag. Now, let me ask you this: at the beginning, do we we don't ever see what's in there, right? No, you never do. No. Okay, so. I think the ending was absolutely horrible. I would agree. It need, Had they showed what was in the bag, it would have been a punch. You know what it's there, but it's like you built up to this big, huge mystery and what's it going to be? I thought it was a little disappointing what it really ended up being. But if you saw it and you saw how horrible it was, you may have had more of an emotional reaction, maybe. I think so. But you couldn't have done that in 1945, though, really. Yeah, yeah I guess not. You can kind of imply certain things, but in 1945, yeah, you couldn't go around with with a severed head. You could get away with that in the 50s, late 50s, 45. Yeah, still a little too early for for that. I agree that would have definitely added a different take. You know, I mean, if you would have known what was in there and you're like, how the heck did he get that, you know, in the back? What led up to that? Because if you would have saved the reveal for the end, I don't know, though. I mean, but then you've given away the ending at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Well, and even the, I guess, the execution of the right before it goes back to the confession, is it's either rushed or talk about not being able to show. Of course, you couldn't show what he did. The way he swings the sword, it doesn't even look like it. No. And that to the guy, he's out of the shot. I would agree. Yeah. I, 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 but I was, man, I was feeling this up until the end. I really liked it. And I would agree. Was, yeah. The end did fall flat for me, but I loved everything else. That's why yeah, I said you. if you could have done away with the confession part of it, though, for me anyway, and done something different at the end where you could have had that a different impact, you know, at the end shown maybe shown it or implied if you'd have been done that that might have made the confession part work for me i'd have to see it kind of play out this is the one where his inner monologue is ridiculous they're trying to tie the head to it and he's i felt like i was inside his head or you know something like that yeah i didn't like any of that and it didn't play i don't think the inner monologue played nearly as big a part in this one as it did in the other movies i don't think because it didn't really work well, and he had his buddy with him, Lloyd Bridges. Yes, absolutely. He did an monologue. He had some really good cast in this one. I think you had Brenda Joyce playing his wife, Mary Carter. Brenda Joyce uh, only did 27 film credits. Had 27 film credits. She did Spider Woman Strikes Back, which is about the only other genre film she did besides being in Pillow of Death. She did do five Tarzan films opposite both Johnny Weissmuller and Lex Barker. So she is the only, to the best of my knowledge, the only actress to have played Jane opposite two different Tarzans. She basically replaced Maureen O'Sullivan, who had played Jane uh, in the early Johnny Weissmuller films that were done for uh, MGM. When MGM quit doing the Tarzan series and RKO Pictures picked it up, 
Reno Sullivan was under contract to MGM and didn't go. So they essentially wrote Jane out of several films, mentioned that she was back in England visiting family, and then they bring her back for final Weissmuller films. He leaves the role, and then Lex Barker comes in to begin his five-film stretch, and she starts off playing Jane opposite him. Her last film being... Tarzan's Magic Fountain. <laughs> See how I tell you? Everything's so connected. Interesting story. And then after that, she married, I, th- I don't know if it was uh, Army, Air Force, but Air- married someone in the military, Owen Ward, just as the Hollywood studios were starting to build her up to be a big star, didn't like that. What are you doing? Marrying a non-actor. And they immediately said, you're not going to be an A-list star. You are a B-list star. And so she was stuck in B films. And so she was kind of ready to give up her career. And then the Tarzan film opportunity came up. So then she did that and then did, you know, she had done these films, but she was kind of on her way out mentally. After doing five Tarzan films, she decided she was done. And so she left Hollywood very abruptly. She moved to Washington, D.C., where she worked with refugee services for 10 years very non-Hollywood role. Sadly, her later years were plagued with problems. She was married to Owen Ward for 19 years. They had children, but then the marriage ended and it was a messy divorce. She was remarried two more times. Both marriages failed. And then she uh, began to suffer dementia in later, later years. She did live to be 92, though, but she spent her, her final years living with her children and she died of pneumonia in 2009 uh, at the age of 92 as mm. a result of the uh, dementia. Kind of an interesting career that she had. She did a really about face when she left Hollywood to move half, really across the country and work with refugees. But she was praised for her work with the refugee services. So I really liked her as Jeff Carter's wife, Mary. However, there was a few times where you're like, am I supposed to be cheering her on? Because for starters, she kind of is pushing Jeff, right, to make more money and you got to think of the family. She was kind of right in one way. But on the other hand, it's like, well, gosh, you're not being supportive. Maybe he should be thinking more of providing for his family. I was kind of on the fence with that. She kind of came across a little raw there. And then very oblivious to Jeff Carter's boss, Roger Graham, played by J. Carroll Nash, his intentions. Right. Clearly, you know, he's interested in her. He does all this behind the scenes workings to make sure that, uh, for starters, when Jeff wants to continue to work on the vaccine and doesn't want to be rushed, he quits. Well, he gets Black, blackballed. He can't work anywhere for a year. And then Roger Graham comes back saying, I need you. I'll, you can write your ticket. You can have all the money in the world. Mary says, you got to do it. He does it. And next thing we know, they've got this big house. They're no longer living in the, in the little rundown apartment building. Clearly life is going good. They have a, a housekeeper now. Then of course, Roger Graham decides to start pulling the behind the scenes workings and get Jeff out of the picture so he can have Mary all to himself. And she seems to be oblivious to it. 
She doesn't seem to mind, though, as she's being wined and dined by him, though, which, again, is kind of like, ah, really? It made it hard to, to sympathize with her too much because she definitely enjoyed that lifestyle. Yeah, um, I didn't know if she was a strong woman. I mean, I thought she was sincere. I think she would have stayed. I think she loved Lon Chaney. She would have stayed with them if they were penniless. Yeah. I don't think she was like some conniving housewives that, you know. No, because she clearly loved him and she yeah, was important to come back. So when she would tell him you need to make more, I think she was more of like, hey, you're capable of more than this. You know, wouldn't it be nice? I, I, I thought that was all done in a very positive way. Now, as far as her relationship with the boss, she was either naive or she was, again, still just a strong woman, you know, very confident in her feelings, not tempted. She enjoyed her time with them, but you never got any indication that she was kind of enjoying it too much or in the wrong way. So it, it is a little ambiguous, but overall, she won out on the good person side for me. She did. By the end, as, as, as I was working my way through the movie, I was kind of like, do I need to change my feelings about her? You know, and I was like, oh, no. OK, she's good. That's what. Yeah, it, it is kind of hard to. Is she was she naive? Was she remaining strong and just oblivious or did she perceive it? Just didn't think anything of it. It was that was a little oh, Does that make it a great performance or a bad performance? <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know. That's and um, is great. I mean, he's ah, yeah. Oh, he's despicable. But you'd never Charming. know it, which makes it 10 times worse. I mean, he doesn't overplay it. He doesn't twirl his mustache. He's talks common sense at an even pace. Doesn't hardly ever changes his pace no, or he's his voice. Really evil, right? Because he yeah. pushes through the vaccine, not really well, caring. Well, you know what? Uh, 75%, that's pretty yeah, good. That's pretty good. That's, that's pretty good. good. Let's put it out. And then, of course, you know, the, the real vaccine comes in, you know, and then it's like, oh, well, it's going to cost too much. Ah, we're good. We're good. Yeah. I did. There was a big plot hole for me, though. So when the vaccine obviously doesn't work. So Jeff Carter's on his way back because he discovers the vaccine for sale in South America. South America. Like, how, how do they get that? So now he's on his way back. All of a sudden, we're seeing all these headlines, right? Pharmaceutical companies under fire. Jeff Carter's a fraud, whatever. Meanwhile, Roger Graham apparently is out of town and then comes back and is oblivious to everything that happens. Like, how could you be oblivious? And how long were you gone that all this stuff happened? And why and aren't the police waiting for him? Why did no one from the office call? It's like, hey, you need to get back here. <laughs> Things are going bad. That was a poorly written segment. That, that for me... Was that was a that was a plot hole that that was that was that was something weak, but I as you said I loved his performance, his two foot long cigarette holder that he had <laughs> was just as he's like showing off the house that you get like a a hint that he's bragging but not overly so right it's just he's confident and that that's really what he is it's like it wasn't bragging so much as like. No, I, I I know. I know this is amazing. I've gone to see all these places. And of course, that's what gets Mary interested, right? Because she she's just enthralled to hear his stories and stuff. Yeah, he was really good in this different character, right? Not not anything like the police inspector. You know he's bad and you know you you should hate him, but then there's other parts of you like, 
kind of like him. He's kind of just, he's confident and suave and knows what he wants and he's going to get what he wants. Then you got to really think about what he did indirectly. Did he kill anybody? No, but his actions resulted in people dying. Spoiler here, Jeff and Mary's son succumbs. That's an incredibly sad sequence. Yeah, it's awful. And unfortunately sets the climax of the film to where Mary is convinced she's going to do something. And ultimately, I think she would have had she not got the gun knocked out of her hand. But then, of course, Jeff comes in and then she realizes like, nope, we can't do this. But it's at that point. I knew something with this scimitar was going to come into play. And then, yeah, he's got that in the bag. And that that was for me. Now, I'd seen this 15 years ago and remembered nothing about these movies. I really didn't remember anything about any of these movies. Watching these were like a first time viewing for me. There was nothing I remembered about these. But I remember enjoying the heck out of them when I watched them. I just haven't revisited them. Every year, I was watching Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula. But there's some of these other lesser universal films and Inner Sanctum is not really that much lesser, tends to get overshadowed and overlooked. And so when you have a chance to revisit them, you're like, these are really good. Why have I not watched this in the last 15 years? I do want to say a couple other cast members. So we mentioned Lloyd Bridges, plays his friend Dave Curtis, best known for Sea Hunt, the airplane movies, and being the father of Bo and Jeff Bridges. Milburn Stone is back playing the character of Stevens, lesser role in this one. He's Roger Graham's lackey, basically doing the behind the scenes dirty work. This was based on a composition by Gene Bart. I have no idea what that means. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I'm like, what's, what does that mean? It comp- was based on a song? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> or yeah, someone I, in class, was it written in a little blue notebook? With- I know, it's like, it's like someone wrote it. Yeah, I don't know. I had never seen that before in a credit. That took me by surprise. It was written by M. Coates Webster. Do you want to take a guess of one of the, mo- one of the movies that M. Coates Webster wrote? Jungle Woman. Or cap, close. Jungle Captive. I'm, I can't. Jungle Captive. There okay. you go. And The Brute Man. I love these six movies because these titles, <laughs> like everyone just did everything. Directed by John Hoffman. Only did seven films. And this is the most notable. So not really a very prolific director. Yet, I think he did a really good job with this movie. I liked the story and the way it flowed. And you had some different locales. You've got the, the jungle set. You've got the poor little monkeys. Carla didn't like that scene. It's like, as soon as she saw it, she was like, oh, God. And I was like, I, she looks at me like, I don't remember. <laughs> but the monkeys are being experimented on. Probably not going to end well for some of them. Got to mention a little trivia here on Mrs. O'Connor, the housekeeper, character actress. You, you may have remembered her or not. Played by actress Mary Gordon. Over 300 credits. She usually played the same type of character. She was... Hans's wife in The Bride of Frankenstein, 1935. Mm. And she also played Mrs. Hudson, Sherlock Holmes's housekeeper in the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes film series. Mm. Oftentimes not even getting credited in those movies, but she would pop up at least in a couple of scenes. This one, I just really enjoyed the heck out of it. It was a fun story. I just didn't like the wraparound. And the ending, as you said, it fell flat a little bit. I wish the ending would have been a little bit different or a little bit better because you can have a down ending, you know, downbeat ending. That's fine. But I mean, I'm thinking compared to 
the other films, this was the first time that things didn't end well for Lon Chaney, right? Things ended well for him in the first four films. Not so well in this one. I don't know if there's a way out for him in this one. Don't see it happening, even even under the circumstances. Great film. A lot of fun. Yep. Okay, we have one more movie to go for. 1945, December 14th, Pillow of Death. Pillow of Death. I mean, they couldn't have come up with a better title than Pillow of Death. I am Vivian Fletcher. I want to accuse my husband, Wayne, of murdering me. Gaze through this man's eyes into a black, unholy secret. Walk beyond this door to unseen crime. Listen to a witch's tale of twisted love and whispering murder. Who are you? Are you ready to confess you murdered your wife and the others, Wayne Fletcher? Confess, Fletcher, you know you killed him. Attorney Lon Chaney Jr. arrives home to tell his wife their marriage is over. He's met by police who inform him that she's been murdered. He's the number one suspect. However, his secretary lives in an old dark house with a cast of characters that could also be involved. Pillow of death. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we've got Lon Chaney Jr. as Wayne Fletcher. Didn't feel like an attorney, right? I mean, I guess there was a throwaway line where he mentions something about it, but other than that, it doesn't play into what he does at all, which again is different, right? Because in the first five films, his profession plays a part of the story. Being an attorney means nothing to the story. Right from the get-go, we should mention that as the movie starts, there is no floating head. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't know the reason why we didn't get that in this movie, but we don't. It starts off the same. It's an inner sanctum mystery, then goes right into the opening credits. And this movie, I think, feels a little different than the first five movies. It does. You know, not necessarily a bad thing. This is essentially an old dark house movie. And I think up until the final act and certainly the last scene... I thought the movie worked really well. I loved the heck out of the old dark house setting and the cast of quirky characters, stuff we've seen before, but it worked really well, I thought. And then it really kind of falls apart at the very end. Really? I, see, that didn't bother me. I really like, in fact, I think out of all of the twist endings, this one really worked for me. I liked it. Did you, what did you not like? what happened or the way it happened or like the very ending? Well, the very end, the final scene and, and the, and the wrap up thing, there, there's a couple of key things that, that don't make sense to me. The twist ending, I honestly didn't see coming, but then I kind of like, you know, so there's a lot of inner monologue that happens, especially towards the end of this one. But then I started kind of going back and thinking, 
when you look at how Lon Chaney is in the rest of the film, the twist, of course, you don't see coming because all of a sudden it's very out of character compared to how he was in the rest of the movie. And I'm like, well, is there anything that was foreshadowing the twist or that could justify the twist? And honestly, the twist comes out of clear blue. Or does it? Okay. It's so subtle, but the seance scene when everyone's there and they hear Vivian's voice, Vivian, right? His wife, dead wife. And they find the creepy neighbor peeking in the door and Lon sees him. And did everyone hear the voice? Because we clearly heard the voice. And I'm trying to go back and think, wait a minute, did they comment Uh, on that? Did anyone else hear it? Or was he the only one? They kind of squandered it. They could have made it a little more unusual. That's almost like a little bit of a sixth sense kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then there's this scene where he's in the in the graveyard, right? And he's hearing the voice in his head. But yeah, we clearly at the end of the movie realize that he's the only one hearing the voice. Right. Okay. I didn't pick up on that. And, yeah, and I didn't either until it was over and I was went through okay. the same pos- thought process you did. That was out of nowhere. And then I thought, did we have any clues? We did have clues. So uh, what I would I'll take that back. Yeah. I, that he there was clues that you just didn't know what they were clues to until that revealed. Okay, that makes that part. Yeah, and there was something else wrong with that scene because then I thought, okay, he was peeping in, but did he make the voice? Did did Bruce, the neighbor, do the voice? And was he doing that because he wanted the girl and he's trying to put guilt onto Lon Chaney? They never really played it one way or the other. And you just kind of assume, okay, everyone heard the voice, but they could have done something to tweak it where it's a little more, I don't know, Less vague, I guess, but you don't even know it's vague at that point. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Let's talk about the neighbor, Bruce Malone, oh. <laughs> played by Bernard Thomas. That's where the movie, that's my biggest problem with the final scene. Brenda Joyce as Donna Kincaid, she is clearly wanting to do her own thing, but she's living with her, uh, yeah, aunt and uncle, right? Yeah, they weren't married, but they were both her aunt and uncle. Belle Kincaid and her brother, Sam. Belle Kincaid was played by Clara Blandick. Not a name you're going to know, but did you recognize her? Auntie M from The Wizard of Oz. Really? Yes. I thought she looked familiar. I saw the credits like that was Auntie M. She was also in She-Wolf of London. George Cleveland played Brother Sam. A couple of horror creds. He was in The Ape with Boris Karloff and in uh, The Devil and Daniel Webster. Uh, And then there was Amelia Kincaid, played by Rosalind Ivan. She was only in 24 films, one of which was the Sherlock Holmes film Pursuit to Algiers. The police captain in this one is Captain McCracken, played by Wilton Graff. Serviceable. Yeah, it didn't really stand out as much as the others. He was in Valley of the Zombies. You've got the character of Julian Julian, played by J. Edward Bromberg. I've seen him in other things. He always plays kind of the same quirky character. Yeah. He's been in Mr. Moto films and Charlie Chan films. He was an invisible agent. He was in Phantom of the Opera, the 1940s version, where I remember him from, of course, playing the character of Professor Laszlo in Son of Dracula. He died in 1951 at the age of 47 of a heart attack. So he died Mm -hmm. young. He's a quirky, fun character. Julian, what's your last name? Julian. (laughs) Donna... 
is annoyed with the with her neighbor Bruce. Let's just identify that Bruce is a creeper and he's committed crimes, right? Spoiler alert, folks. He robs a body, takes it out of the crypt, carries this dead body and hides it in the basement of his neighbor's house in which there happens to be a secret passage that connects the house. And he doesn't want them to bar the to board it up because then he wouldn't be able to come in and check on poor Donna. Okay, nine one one. Anybody? <laughs> yes, he he clearly saw something was wrong, and he was trying to protect her. He was a creeper. Yeah, but I was going to say that they write it off because he they've grown up living next to each other, and he always used to come in a, as a kid and play with Donna. I don't think that's a valid excuse, but that's what they use. I, I know, but clearly she was bothered by it. Like, we're going to board that up. <laughs> oh, please don't. I want to come in and check on you. And then I, I get it. He was right, you know, and ultimately he does kind of save Donna in the in the end. Then all of a sudden in the final scene, she's apparently with him. And, you know, Julian, Julian is going on to whatever the next case is going to be you know, or his next adventure. And then there's Donna standing next to Bruce. And again, I'm like, okay, shouldn't Bruce be arrested? Because (laughs) even though he he still, he robbed a grave, clearly that has to be a crime, even under the circumstances. I don't know. That bothered me. I'm like, why is she with him? I get it. Been friends since kids. Well, and I refuse to believe like she's with him. Yeah, they're standing there and he's probably got his arm around her or something. But I just, maybe they are together, but I refuse to believe that they really are. (laughs) I didn't look like they were together. It did, it did. She seemed to be really happy. I was like, oh, I'm with Mr. Creeper now. We'll just keep that little passageway open and you can (laughs) sneak in in the middle of the night now and stare at me. That bothered me. The, The ending... I, I'm not as bothered with the twist ending now because of, of our conversation. I'm like, okay, but I still, the very final scene falls flat for me. <laughs> Lon Chaney fell flat. Nah, he did. <laughs> However, all of that aside and a very weak title, Pillow of Death, I don't know what you could have called it, but something different. I did love the old dark house setting. And I, I really enjoyed the setting in this one. It's funny. The characters are great. I loved Sam. He was a hoot. And the whole thing about the Kincaid ghosts in the attic. Yes. yes. All of that. That's really good. Uh, a little bit coincidental forced all their relationships. I mean, the fact that Donna was their niece and the, then her aunt knew Lon Chaney's wife all through this medium. It's just a little bit forced and coincidental i mean it's what ties them all together it does tie them all together yeah it does seem a little a little forced if you think about it pretty similar to calling dr death plot wise uh, yeah different different trappings it works a lot better for me than calling. oh yeah my gosh yes the story was by dwight v babcock again familiar with him the screenplay by george bricker he did mr moto film he did the Octopus, did House of Dracula, House of Horrors, The Dancing Masters with Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, and The Devil Bat. Mm. And here's my legitimate Star Trek connection in this one. Oh, no, that was in the last movie. I missed it. We got to backtrack. Strange Confession. 
my Star Trek connection, a strange confession. The housekeeper of the attorney that we see in the beginning of the film, uh, and I think he pops up in the final scene, is uh, played by Ian Wolfe, who was in two episodes of Star Trek. He played Mr. Ataz in the third season story, All Our Yesterdays. And then he played, uh, I forget his character name, but he played in the second season story, Bread and Circuses. Hmm. Uh, Ian Wolfe has always looked like he's 80 years old, (laughs) but that's the legitimate Star Trek connection that I have. Sorry, forgot to mention that. Back to Pillow of Death, directed by Wallace Fox. This is his really only genre film. He did lots of Westerns, though. He had a, a, a solid career, but lots of Westerns. He did The Corpse Vanishes. Did he? Okay, I stand corrected. I missed that one. That must have blended in with all the titles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, Corpse Fanners, I swear, all it, you know, you had like five people working on all these different yeah. films. And you just get the feeling that they like just finished a movie one day, next day showed up on another set, did that. Well, movie. I kind of, Universal had their, their stock players, right? They just kind of mm-hmm. moved them around. I really enjoyed this one. Despite my complaints about the end of it, the old Dark House setting absolutely worked for me and, and made it one of my... One of my favorites in the series as well. These last two films were solid for me, I thought. But apparently, you know, by the time we get to this one, the film series had run its course and we didn't get any more films in the Inner Sanctum series. I would have loved to have seen more. I think that you could, you know, Lon Chaney did a good job of playing similar yet different characters. It didn't end on a weak note for me. I think it ended on a strong note. Yeah. I would have been happy to see more. It really seems like they fit the inner sanctum mold. They didn't just take a movie that was on the shelf and slap inner sanctum on it. I don't think, I mean, maybe they did. I mean, it didn't seem like it. These seemed all really appropriate for it. I agree. What happened? Inner sanctum didn't die after this though. The radio series was still going strong. It continued to play on the radio until October 5th, 1952. Before that, though, we did get another Inner Sanctum film. 1948, there was a movie called Inner Sanctum. And, you know, I did not write the studio name down, but it was not. I don't think it was a big studio. Charles Russell, Mary Beth Hughes, and Billy House. Not necessarily A-list actors. However, I think you'd recognize Billy House when you saw him. He's a character actor and kind of pops up in a lot of films and I think maybe even some TV shows. They had the same agreement with Simon and Schuster, so it's an you know it's got the inner sanctum mystery label at the beginning of it. The movie though is not really a mystery; it's definitely more of a film noir. We clearly know who is dead and who committed the crime in the first scene of the film, and the rest plays out as kind of a typical film noir. It suffers from a low budget and the rather downbeat ending, which is kind of typical of film noir. I mean, film noir sometimes is, you know, there's not happy endings in film noir. It's not a bad film. It's in public domain. You can get it really cheap or free on various sources like YouTube, and it's probably on archive.org. I am going to be reviewing the film more proper for the blog. going to do a couple companion articles. So after I post the initial post about the podcast, which is usually... Within a week after you do it, I could kind of give us a few days, then I repost it on my site. I'm going to do an OTR Wednesday where I'm going to highlight Inner Sanctum Mysteries, 
and then I'll do the uh, separate review for the 48 film. The studio, by the way, I can't believe you'd forget this. MRS Pictures Incorporated. I think it was the only movie they did. Now that oh, you yeah. mentioned that, I think and did it uh, was released by Film Classics. Now that you mentioned, I think that was the one and only film they did. Not <laughs> a bad film. Yeah, after watching six movies with Lon Chaney Jr., then there was this one. It was kind of a, a, it fell flat a little bit. There was a television show in 1954, ran 39 episodes. This was handled by Hyman Brown. So it starts off very much like the radio show. It had the same organ music. It had the creaking door. And Paul McGrath comes back as the host and basically starts off the, you know, good evening, friends of the Inner Sanctum. Some familiar faces, Jack Klugman, Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, E.G. Marshall. This is a hard series to find. Uh, It is most likely public domain, but it seems like when people post it on YouTube, it gets pulled for copyright infringement. I believe if I was to take a guess, the Hyman Brown estate probably wants to, to hold on to it, yet there's never been a formal release. Not surprising when you find out how the Hyman Brown estate handled the next big radio show that he did, which was CBS Radio Mystery Theater, which started on January 6, 1974. This was Hyman Brown's revival of old-time radio. It ran five nights a week on CBS Radio until December 31st, 1982. 1,399 episodes in that time frame. Most of the stories probably would have been better as 30 minutes as opposed to an hour, but that's it filled this time slot. I was introduced to this probably around 1980 or so when I got introduced to old-time radio in 79 and, and began listening to things. My dad found out about it and said, hey, there's this cool radio show. It's like the old-time radio shows. You'd enjoy it. But I was in school, so I couldn't stay up late because it was 11 o'clock at night. So I had to listen to it either on Friday nights or on non-school nights. Sometimes I would get my little transistor radio and listen to 1330 KFH radio and would hide under the covers and listen to it. I would get caught occasionally. Sometimes I'd fall asleep with the radio next to my ear. You know, I'd hear the next morning, you know, I was like, well, you fell asleep. You know, you shouldn't have been sleeping, listening to the show. I love CBS Radio Mystery Theater. All of the episodes still exist. It it starts off with the creaking door. E.G. Marshall was the host for all but the final season and was replaced by Tammy Grimes, who did not do justice to the role of narrator or host. He did some cool little catchphrases like the sound of suspense and the fear you can hear. And he ended each episode with, until next time... Pleasant dreams. A lot of things kind of stolen from Inner Sanctum. So the show has never been released commercially. Hyman Brown, when he was alive and now his estate, owned the master tapes. He's never put them out on cassette or record or CD. In the early days of the internet, if somebody put an episode up online, he would send a cease and desist letter and they'd have to pull it down. All of the episodes exist from off-air recordings, people who had either cassette tapes or reel-to-reel. The sound quality varies. Sometimes it's not 100%. Sometimes you get commercials, which is awesome to listen to, vintage 1974 
commercials about diet right and contact and all the products that we've forgotten about over the years. And you get also like original news, news breaks in some of these recordings. He tried to revive the series around 2000. He took episodes from the original series and offered them to NPR with new hosting segments that he did so you wouldn't have to pay E.G. Marshall and Tammy Grimes the syndicated rights that were probably in their contract. I ran for a year. Very few NPR stations played it. Uh, I never heard an NPR version of it. It died off again. Even then, he never released it. He died in 2010 at the age of 99. And the estate, here we are 11 years later, it's never been released. The master tapes exist. But the difference is, is that they don't force anyone to take the, the shows offline. All 1,399 episodes are available to people to listen to. There's websites that have the entire run of the show. You can get them on YouTube, archive.org, you name it. They're out there, and that's the only way, though, to listen to the show. I love the show, even though, again, I acknowledge that, you know, certainly some episodes, you know, have padding in them. You get Sherlock Holmes adaptations. There's numerous ones. They did a Christmas Carol. You have some familiar voices from the golden age of radio, like Santos Ortega, Alan Reed, Fred Flintstone himself, Les Tremaine, who was mentor in the Shazam Saturday morning television series. He was a well-known radio actor. Agnes Moorhead was in the uh, very first episode and then you had some then contemporary or future stars like Roy Finnis, John Lithgow, and even Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm. It's a great series. Seek it out. It has definitely the feel of Inner Sanctum. I think that it, it tends to lean more towards the supernatural than some of the mysteries that Inner Sanctum would do. There certainly is that with like the Sherlock Holmes adaptations, but they definitely dive into some outright horror. And if I remember correctly, I mean, they definitely do some Lovecraft and definitely there's some Poe, some very, very good stuff. That is about the end of, of, of Inner Sanctum. There hasn't been anything in recent memory other than the fact that Inner Sanctum, everybody knows some of the catchphrases and the creaking door. I would love for them to put out something, but I think the window of opportunity is probably gone the show's available now and everyone doing digital. I think it's almost too late if you put out a CD collection. I think some people would, would buy it just to hear a crisp, clear version, but not as much as it would have been 20 years ago. If you would have put the show out 20 years ago on CD, people would have ate it up. That is The Inner Sanctum. Let's circle back and go through our final rankings of the six movies. Let's start at the bottom and go up to the top, kind of explain a little bit. This is for both our audio listeners and our video watchers. My number six least favorite is Calling Dr. Death. I think you probably agree with that. Maybe not. I do. I do. When I started off the podcast, it was number five for me, but reconfiguring it as we've talked through, it, it definitely comes in at number six for me. It's my least favorite, I think, for the same reasons as you. Yeah, none of these are technically brilliant films. They're not going to win any awards. I'm watching them and rating them strictly for entertainment value, and this was the least entertaining to me. So that's why I put it at the bottom. I'd agree. 
My number five might be controversial. I think you liked it more than I did. And that is the frozen ghost. I ended up, it's not my number five, but it's very, very close. As I reconfigured things for me, number five is dead man's eyes. That one fell a little flat. I enjoyed it, but Gene Parker, it really comes down to Gene Parker. I, she just ruined this, the film for me. I just couldn't get into her character and the rest kind of unravels. And being honest, Aquanetta is not an A-list <laughs> star. She's not a B-list star. Uh, it'll be interesting when we do that film series next month to see how her lack of solid acting was a weakness in this film. Is it going to be potentially a strength in those films? I don't know. But for here, it hurt the film. So Dead Man's Eyes for me is is number five. Yeah, anyone whose name sounds like a hairspray, I'm suspicious of. (laughs) Uh, And Frozen Ghost to me, I loved the wax museum setting, but it didn't work out some of the complications and the plot, just in the confusion about the whole setup and everything. That one left me a little bit puzzled. What was your number four? Well, number four for me is Frozen Ghost. Not too far off from you. I still enjoyed that one more than the other two, which is why it it kind of comes in right in the middle. I love the Wax Museum setup. That really covers some of the other plot holes or deficiencies. As we talked about, the leap from getting Gregor the Great to all of a sudden now somehow being at the Wax Museum. I never was entirely sure what he's really doing there. That aside, I, I love Martin Koslick's performance and love the the Wax Museum setting. Always is fun to have that in a movie, and it helps this movie. Whatever deficiencies it has, it helped it for me. My number four it actually could, I'm debating between it and number five, Frozen Ghost. So Frozen Ghost might have been my number four, except I did at this moment like Strange Confession a little bit better than Frozen Ghost. With a better ending, uh, it would have been even higher in the list. I really enjoyed it. The setup, the story, uh, the tragedy that Lon Chaney Jr. went through. But that ending just <laughs> fell flat. We're up to number three? Yeah, what's yours? Number three for me would be Pillow of Death. I will say really? the, worst, the worst title out of all six <laughs> films. Don't rate it on that. I know, no. So we're looking at the top three films now. Really, the top four films i all I enjoyed. And so it's just, there's very little separating sure. one from two, from three, from four. Five and six are definitely a little farther down the list. Pillow of Death, what makes it better than Frozen Ghost for me is the old dark house setting. Whereas I, you know, wax museums, old dark house settings, they're both cool things. The old dark house plays a bigger role in this movie than the wax museum does in Frozen Ghost. That's why it kind of gives it the edge because that was really a good selling point. Plus the cast is really solid in this one. Some zany characters, Julian, Julian, that's almost worth a bump up a point just for his (laughs) weird character. Just a solid film for me, except for that final scene, which, which falls flat for me. But, you know, and that was, I was, we were talking, I was kind of like juggling things around and stuff you did make me see that another uh, weakness that I thought the movie had actually really wasn't the weakness because I kind of missed that foreshadowing. Uh, and now that I see that, I was like, okay, yeah, that kind of saves that weak point for me, kind of scratches it off the list. Solid film in the series. 
the only thing I really didn't care for was that very last scene. My number three, which is going to be controversial, is Weird Woman. I know that's probably most people's number one. It's definitely the best made, the most technically proficient film. It's good. I didn't enjoy it as much as my top two. It's definitely a solid film in the series, and I can see why a lot of people place it at number one without giving away my thing too early, but to, to say that I think people automatically compare it to Burn Witch Burn. And I think that either helps or hurts the film. It's kind of hard for the film to kind of stand on its own because it, it's there's always that comparison, right, to Burn Witch Burn. And depending on how you feel about Burn Witch Burn is either going to elevate the film or it's going to decrease it a little bit because you're going to immediately compare it I'll leave on that note. All right. So what was your number three? Did we do that yet? We did. Number three was Pillow Death. So we're up to number two. My number two would be Strange Confession. I'm sitting there juggling between Pillow of Death and Frozen Ghost. And as we were talking, Strange Confession really bumped up because I really got, I didn't like the wraparound segments, but I really loved everything in between. And Brenda Joyce and Jay Carroll Nash just really helped the film along. I just, I think that despite the, the down ending, which, you know, was a little uh, unfortunate up to this point, everything had been good, you know, and then we get to these last two films and well, things don't go so well for Lon. After good things in the first four films, it goes south. I think just everything is solid about this movie. I just, I love the script. I love every, the way everything kind of came together. You could elevate this movie by taking away the the opening and closing segment and somehow wrapping up the story maybe a little differently. And you wouldn't have needed the strange confession because it really didn't play a big part in the movie. It's a plot device just in order to share the story. But really, the, the end falls very, very flat for me, but not enough so that it deters the rest of the film. Yeah, if you're going to have that wraparound, you need a, a big payoff think of all the anthology films how those end you know yeah. it's, you know you and that definitely lacked that that's number two for me so oh, what's your then we know what your number one is so go ahead well my number one is weird woman I, yes i'm gonna go along with the rest of the pack i love this movie I'm trying to sit there's anything weak or anything there isn't and so that's why it just slightly edges out strange confession pill of death and frozen ghost each of those films has something weak in it right it's not, for me, a perfect film from beginning to end. Weird Woman, for me, I was like, well, there's, there's not really anything that falls flat for me. Everything works for me from beginning to end. As we said, there's certain elements of Weird Woman that I like better than Burn Witch Burn. I'm not familiar with the original story. I understand there are some differences, but comparing it to Burn Witch Burn, a movie which I really enjoyed, I enjoy this one a little bit better and I like the the voodoo aspect as opposed to the witch aspect and and the character discovering this new world and she doesn't get quite as freaked out when everything starts to crumble because she's trying to be convinced that what she believes in isn't necessarily the right thing there was no convincing Janet Blair's character in Burn Witch Burn she was pretty adamant that witchcraft was, you know, what she did. And she was much more hysterical than, than Paula is. 
that to me is is why I would think this movie is just a little more enjoyable than Burn Witch Burn. And because there's not really anything in the movie that falls flat for me is why it's my most favorite of the of the series. That's fair. That's fair. Well, my number two, Dead Man's Eyes. I really love that setup. Lots that's of fun. That's the biggest difference. I think that's really the, the biggest difference for us as far as there's a few, obviously your number one's different than mine, but that that's a big difference. And, yeah, my number one's Pillow of Death. Hands down for me, the most entertaining from beginning to end. I loved the ending. Uh, I think it was, for me, the best twist. I didn't see it coming. Nothing about that ending bothered me like it did you. If I were to have to watch another one of these tonight, it'd be Pillow of Death. If I had to sit there right now looking at these movies, is there any of these movies that I would say I don't want to revisit? No. Even my least favorites, I would revisit those movies because you know what? I might enjoy them more the second time around. They may not be as solid for me as the others, but this was a fun film series. Yeah, I enjoyed talking about them and learning about the legacy of the Inner Sanctum. Inner Sanctum Mysteries, the complete film collection on Blu-ray from Mill Creek. You did get a few extras with these. A few of the trailers are included that were not apparently available when they did the original DVD set. You do get an interview with Martin Kozlik, which is an archive interview. There is a fun little mini documentary on the Inner Sanctum radio series that features the voice of Martin Grahams, well-known if you're on Facebook or if you are an old-time radio fan or a vintage television fan. Martin Grahams, everybody knows him. He's also an author. He gives a lot of insight into the series. And then there is a, a documentary on the film series proper. Both of those are done by Ballyhoo Productions. If you're familiar with Ballyhoo, you know you get a fun little documentary. And there's a booklet, which doesn't really offer a whole lot, but it does offer some cool pictures and uh, a few little trivia you know, tidbits. And the price on this right now, it's $30 on Amazon. It has gone as low as like, what, $11 in some sales over the last several months. I got it, I think, for 13 on one of those weird five-minute sales on Amazon. I think you can get it fairly cheap. If you have the DVD set, you don't need to upgrade. I don't think the films look really any different than what they are on DVD. You get some extras, and they're nice, but if you just want the films and you have them on that DVD set... I think you're fine. Yep, I was going to say I got mine for a great price thanks to the miracle of hand-me-downs. Great film series. Highly recommend it. Let's take one more break, come back, and wrap things up. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Mize, the creator of the Bill Watches Movies podcast, and we're interrupting your regularly scheduled program to ask you a few questions. Number one, have you been feeling a little stressed these days? Number two, do you need something to make you laugh? And number three, would you like to just do nothing but relax and listen to a good story? 
Now, if you answered yes to the above questions, then I invite you to check out my show, Bill Watches Movies. It's a little bit Hollywood history, a little bit old-time radio, and a little bit Mystery Science Theater 3000, well, except we don't have any maroon janitors, wisecracking robots, or inept mad scientists. What we do have is a trip down memory lane as we take a very unique look at the B-movies of yesterday and offer you something to make you smile, something to make you laugh, and something to make you think about what you would do if you realize that Bella Lugosi was working on creating an army of atomic-powered supermen next door. So join the rest of the gentle listeners and come on over to BillMakesPodcast.com or look us up on your favorite podcast subscription and transmission machine and subscribe today. I look forward to telling you a good story each month, powered only by my weird sense of humor and a shot of Woodford Reserve Double Oak Bourbon. I hope that you'll join me on this journey. Take good care of yourself and those that you love. And hey, keep an eye on your next door neighbor. I mean, you never know. We are back with our regular features in new business. We'll start out with some home video releases. Seem to be getting more scarce and scarce, but we do have a a couple in April and March and April, I guess. The Invisible Man appears and The Invisible Man versus The Human Fly coming out on March 16th from Arrow Video. That one just kind of came out of nowhere. I'm sure it was probably on the list, but it seemed like all of a sudden yesterday, I'm like, what? All right. Yeah, and it's coming out already. I mean, some of the things that I've heard announced, I'm not going to mention today because they don't come out to like May and June. And yet this one did. It just popped up out of nowhere. Yeah. Interesting film on March 30th from Severin, Nosferatu in Venice from 1988. Have you ever seen that? I have it, actually. I, I acquired a bootleg of that a few years back, and bootlegs were very hard to find for this movie. It is technically a sequel to Klaus Kinski's Nosferatu, the vampire in 79. However, Klaus being Klaus, didn't want to go in the makeup for this one. So, okay, we'll just ignore the fact that Nosferatu dies in the first movie. He's back in the second movie and doesn't look like Nosferatu now, but he's a vampire. But we'll still call him Nosferatu. It's a quirky film. It has, I think, what, Donald Pleasance and Christopher Plummer, I think, are both in it. Yeah. Um, Isn't it in modern day or is it in the... It is, yeah. It's kind of in modern times as well. His appearance, I guess, would make sense. He wouldn't want to be seen like that. But I I guess he can control that appearance. I love Nosferatu the Vampire 79. It's been a few years since I've seen it. Nosferatu in Venice is, is, it's a film. So Is it worth getting even just to say you have it or not because i'm undecided on it um so who's putting it out severin severin so it'll probably have some cool extras with it severin usually does some stuff uh if it's not too crazy of a price and and you want to have it i would say go for it yeah yeah that's the thing i don't know if i want to have it or not (laughs) 
I'll have to go back. You know, I don't know that I would upgrade mine because I probably, in my mind, I will probably maybe see that film one more time in my life. My copy wasn't bad. I want to say maybe it had subtitles on it, some foreign subtitles. But when I got it, you couldn't even find it on eBay. I had to get it through iOffer because eBay would yank the the listings. Hmm. That required a few extra efforts to get that one back in the day. That was about 15 years ago. Also on March 30th, I saw this one. It was announced with uh, Nosferatu. It's called A Scream in the Streets from 1973. And I, I looked and I got the impression it was more of like a crime drama. And I thought, well, I'm not interested. But today I, I found this new description of it and it makes it a bit intriguing. It's the still startling sicky about a pair of LAPD detectives hunting a transvestite psychopath through a polyester jungle of massage parlor perverts, suburban sex fiends, violence-crazed cops, and one of the worst examples of cross-dressing ever filmed. <laughs> if that's not a sales pitch, I don't know what is. I was going to say that, I mean, come on. If that if that doesn't sell you, then it, it's definitely not the movie for you. So, yeah, that's... Uh... Okay. <laughs> and then, thank goodness for Severin, or from what I could tell, nothing else in April except on the 27th Day of the Animals. This is a super-duper remaster bonus edition. I recall not particularly caring for that movie, but I love those Severin slip covers, and my love for 70s movies only grows stronger, so I ordered me that. For April, May birthdays. This is for you, Richard. March 26, 1931, Leonard Nimoy. We lost him six years ago now, I think it was. Yeah, he passed away in 2015, right before my dad went into the facility for the last 11 months of his life. Leonard Nimoy will forever stick with me because, bringing it down just a tad, but you know, my dad would always share Star Trek news with me. And when he went in the facility, I shared the news that Leonard Nimoy had passed away. And my dad didn't remember who Leonard Nimoy was. Mm -hmm. And that was the first of several incidents that I realized that, you know, we, we were in the final stretch of dad's life. And he hung in for another 11 months. But unfortunately, there were several more of those. So I, I can't ever think of Leonard Nimoy without thinking of that. And also the fact that William Shatner was like the same age as my dad. And I always kind of thought of William Shatner's age and dad's age. And dad was aging as a much more rapid pace than William Shatner was. And here William Shatner is what turning 90, I think, this year. I think later in the month, I think, is his birthday. So and seems to be doing well at 90. Interesting. Kind of a down note. But anyway, I Star Trek always makes me happy, though, and it does. I do think of happy memories with my dad, but I do, it does remind me of that. Speaking of fathers, on April 1st, 1883, Lon Chaney Sr. was born. So that's sort of related to this month's episode. Absolutely. And on April 5th, 1908, Ms. Betty Davis, we spoke about her and others in the Happy Hagsploitation Holiday, episode 38. We need a, a Hagsploitation part two. Yes. The Reckoning or something. Like, uh, New Year's Hagsploitation or something. Absolutely. Anniversaries, April and May movies that came out. March 22nd, 1961, Conga. That was from our Britain Under Siege episode 28. 
April 2nd, 1971, the final episode of Dark Shadows aired. Of course, we talk about that quite a bit and have done a couple episodes dealing with Dark Shadows. That was, I think the number of episodes is a little bit uncertain, but one uh, that we typically go by is 1,245 episodes. So that was the one that aired on April 2nd. And then April 2nd, 1971, House That Dripped Blood. You recall doing that one? Uh, that's been a long time ago. That one has <laughs> that was but... from episode five. <laughs> so that was yeah. You know what? So this is interesting because we, so we would have recorded that in April, right, of 2017, because that would have been our May episode, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. That movie was on television sometime in the last couple of weeks. Carla was reading it and she's like how have we not seen a peter cushing john pertwee movie and i'm like we did it for the podcast and she said well when and i'm like thinking 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 and i had to go back in the list and i'm like uh yeah right before i met you so that's why you haven't seen it man we've been doing it a long time it seems we have so that was on the list of of movies that she wants to see now she says well i want to see that and i said well i haven't seen it for a long time so this is the time of the show where we tell what we're doing outside of the podcast what's going on with me you know it's been kind of quiet but i've been doing some stuff otr wednesday is still happening and i've kind of stirred it up a little bit i was doing lots of feature film radio adaptations and then for some reason this week I'm like at time to stir it up so I'm kind of throwing just different radio shows up each week kind of a sample of one of my favorites so like this last week I did the shadow and I'll do inner sanctum when we put the podcast out pretty much expect anything and everything whether it's a comedy or western or whatever Maybe tied into a movie, maybe not. Maybe tied into a holiday, maybe not. Everyone seems to enjoy throwing up the old-time radio shows, so I figure why not start up and do a little few different genres. And I may come back and do a random movie adaptation, but I just wanted to kind of stir it up. Got a couple of reviews percolating and happening sooner than later for Dread Media. I need to sit down and record them. Uh, That story sounds familiar. I'm doing uh, the last couple of films that were on Joe Bob is Valentine's Day special. I still haven't recorded them, but I'm doing Tammy and the T-Rex and the Love Witch. Joe Bob, by the way, returns on April 16th, this new season. So uh, that'll give me some more possible reviews for, for Dread Media. Kansas City Crypt is taking a break. Feel free to continue to check out the Memiverse Monthly Audio Cast. I'm not on uh, this month and probably won't be for a while. Just wanting to do some more stories from the blog. I've got reviews on the Dirty Harry film series that have been kind of half have been done for a while. So I'm picking that back up. I got some other films that I'm, I'm looking at writing on. Maybe the Bruce Lee box set that I finished up as well. Just some stuff that I want to I want to write about on the blog. There's only so much time in the day. Great. Together, we also appeared on the Nightmare Junkhead podcast, and I believe now, especially by the time this airs, we can reveal the movies that we talked about in their annual Into the Mouth of March Madness uh, celebration. They're sort of equivalent to the Final Four in basketball. 
the movies that made it into our bracket, and I believe we were the second, what were we, the Hateful Eight? We discussed American Werewolf in London, Halloween 2, The Beyond, and My Bloody Valentine, all from 1981. That was our year, and that is a great podcast, very, very entertaining Please give it a, a listen. I think that uh, it was like so it. much, so much fun to get back and do that. We didn't do it last year. They they had some scheduling uh, changes and other people that wanted to be on, but they welcomed us back this year. And unfortunately, we were not able to be there in person, but we did it virtually, and I think it worked out fine. And with any luck, next year we'll be back for 1982. Yep. So on Mondays in the month of March, I will be doing my own personal review of each of those four movies. Friday's still going with TV Terror Guide. We're up to 73. The movies that will be coming up in the next couple weeks, A Cold Night's Death, Horror at 37,000 Feet, The Norless Tapes, and The Stranger. That gets us up through April 2nd. Half of those, by the time this airs, will have probably already been posted. And then Wednesdays at DC Comic Guy, we're into Man Bat still emerging. Of course, he doesn't have a whole huge catalog, so we're cruising right along with that with his first two-issue series uh, and then a couple more appearances in Detective Comics. Pretty soon we'll get into a run where he was in Batman Family. That's a lot of fun. Love Man Bat. As far as writing goes, I think I was talking about the Masters of Terror book and how it was different because we were writing about people rather than movies. And I didn't really know how to take them and I didn't get much guidance. Well, guess what? My piece on Kurt Seadmack. Great piece, they say, but I didn't really talk about his horror movies, which I didn't want to because everyone knows about The Wolfman and that he directed The Wolfman. So I wrote about his early 30s sci-fi and they felt that was more appropriate for the magazine. So at least it wasn't trash but I will now be in the magazine with that piece instead of the book. Um, And then that's all sort of ironic because the next book is a spotlight on science fiction. That's the movies, not the people. So it just didn't really fit in anywhere, but I'm glad that they can use it. So that's We Belong Dead number 26 that is being worked on right now. That will be an issue I will need to make sure I add to the collection. That's it. Uh, What are we doing next time? We've mentioned it. If you've listened you all probably know what it is by now but richard why don't you <laughs> yes, we've mentioned talk the titles about. numerous times in may i will give you a sneak peek without giving away the film titles just yet but we will be talking about george zuko so do some investigating and uh, maybe if you've got some questions or suggestions or thoughts you can be having that percolate because that'll be our may topic Hey, here's an idea. You know, we went through the list to decide what we're going to do, and it was kind of hard to choose because he's in so many great movies. How about if any of our listeners can tell us what one they want us to talk about? Absolutely. We, we, we could consider that. I mean, we've got our three, but and <laughs> let's up the ante. They could participate. For those of you who don't know, we record via Zoom because Jeff and I are in separate locations since he traveled north since the pandemic we haven't been in the same location for recording it's worked out rather well and i don't know how we would do the youtube now that if we're in the same location we would have to think about that that said we easily add a third or fourth or fifth to the group if you're a george zuko fan hit us up so that's our main topic for next month april we are doing an odd trilogy of films 
that I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about. It's because they are often relegated and not considered the best output from Universal, but that kind of was what intrigued me on these films. I I want to revisit these. I want to watch them in order, and I, I want to see them with new eyes. So we're going to be covering Captive Wild Woman from 1943, Jungle Woman from 1944, and Jungle Captive from 1945. I know you've got the Blu-rays of these. I am going to go old school. I've got two of these. I can't remember which ones on VHS. I haven't upgraded, and I am going to be watching these on the old VHS DVD recorder, firing it up. I have the Universal uh, releases from the 1990s, and then I've got the other one on an MP4. A little different viewing for me. I'm kind of looking forward to firing up those videotapes because you know there's going to be that cool universal intro that they always did advertising whatever new movies are coming out. So I'm looking forward to that. It'll be a little different. Some of the same names that we mentioned on this show will be mentioned again. That's next month's films. I'm looking forward to them. It's now dark. (laughs) (laughs) We started it right after breakfast and now it's (laughs) This has been fun. Yeah. So let's remind people, uh, give us a call, 616-649-2582. Send us an email, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. Join the Facebook group page. Rate us on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance. And I think that's all. Anything else from you? Did we mention our websites? I don't know. All right. CaseyCentifile.com, MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. I think we did it at the beginning of the yeah. show. but I ClassicHorrors.club at, yeah, ClassicHorrors.club. Yes. Okay. We are going out with a song called Strange Confession. It's by a group called After Image from their 2007 album, Strange Confession, available on Apple Music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care and stay safe, everyone. seems to enjoy throwing up